0: Greetings, and welcome to Broken Boxes podcast. In this episode, I had the honor to sit down with artist Jeffrey Gibson, joined by curator and co-editor of the publication An Indigenous Present, Janelle Porter. We were given space at Site Santa Fe and director Louis Gracho's office to have a long and generative conversation while we celebrated the book's launch over Indian Market weekend. We talk about Jeff's practice and his journey to this moment, and the artist shares the vulnerable, complicated, difficult and joyous path of choosing to be an artist, offering reflection from what he has learned along the way, understanding how the practice and studio has evolved in the 20-some years of being a working artist. We then dive in with both Jeff and Janelle to speak on Jeff's thought process behind an Indigenous present, learning about the years of care and intention behind the project, which is, as Jeffrey reflects, an artist's book about artists. We round out the two-plus hour chat with the excitement and work that has come with Jeffrey being named the artist to represent the US at the 60th Venice Biennale. As we end our chat, both Jeff and Janelle share important and practical insight on how to navigate the art worlds and art markets. And Jeffrey reminds us all that artists do have the power to set precedents in institutions. Jeffrey Gibson's work fuses his Choctaw-Cherokee heritage and experience of living in Europe, Asia, and the U.S. with references that span club culture, queer theory, fashion, politics, literature, and art history. The artist's multifaceted practice incorporates painting, performance, sculpture, textiles, and video characterized by the vibrant color and pattern. Jeffrey is a celebrated artist who has had numerous exhibitions nationally and internationally, and he currently lives and works in Hudson Valley, New York. Janelle Porter is a curator and writer living in Los Angeles who has curated numerous important exhibitions across the nation and is co-editor of An Indigenous Present with artist Jeffrey Gibson. Full bios of both Jeffrey and Janelle with their numerous accomplishments can be found in the show notes, along with more information on where to pick up the publication in An Indigenous Present. Okay, so I think our levels are good. Um, and I might do a little bit of adjusting while we start. So. But just, yeah, there's no, there's no agenda here except to communicate your truth and like mm. help to inspire, you know, so that's like my only agenda really. and. Yeah.
1: <laughs> how long do you want to, um, how long do you feel like you want to go for?
0: Well, I have till about 12. So okay. we can go as long as it feels comfortable, cool. as long as we feel like sitting here together. Yeah. And there's, it's long format, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to like yeah. kind of maybe talk about, um, and talk about Jeffrey's practice and like how he came into the, this moment. Yeah. And then we can talk about the book and, you know, Janelle can come in and kind of talk about that process. And then we can talk about, like, what's next and, like, the Biennale. And I know your exhibition that just came out is, like, the Superbloom. And I'm like, I Chinoupa and I talk about that a lot, like, what a special time this is. So I'd love to kind of...
2: You mean in terms of, like, Native artists? Yeah,
0: just like what, like, the energy that's vibrating right right now through the art world. Maybe we can end with that. Um, That sounds like
1: a great arc of a conversation.
0: Cool. So... Okay, welcome to Broken Boxes podcast, Thank Jeffrey you. Gibson and Janelle Porter. Yep. We're sitting here at Site Santa Fe in the director's office, mm-hmm. and it's uh, the Friday of Indian Market 2023, and I feel really grateful to do this. I, I've been Thank wanting you. to interview you for like seven years, <laughs> and we've become friends over the years, and... Um, thank you, Jeffrey, yeah. for being here and Janelle, who we'll speak with, two around the Indigenous Present publication. But if you'd like to introduce yourself, any way you like to affiliate communities that you like to connect yourself with and what you do, who you are. Yeah. Uh,
2: well, my name is Jeffrey Gibson. And uh, thank you, Ginger. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm glad to be here. I uh, live in New York. I lived in New York City for about almost 15 years and then since then I moved upstate to the Hudson Valley. and I've been up there for a little over 10 years now. Uh, my studio is there, my family's there. My mom and dad moved there. I'm a member of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians and then my mother is Cherokee from Oklahoma. And so I grew up moving around all over the place, so I've kind of picked up different kinds of communities, a lot of them you know, whether it was like ravers or punks or mods or whoever it was, like we were just the weirdos. And so that's where my interest in music kind of kind of came from. But yeah, I think, I mean, living in the Northeast, there wasn't a huge amount of indigenous community there for a long time of when I first moved there. Um, there was a handful of artists, Laura Ortman, and I knew each other pretty early on in New York City and through the community house. There. And then that's where I met Kathleen Ash Milby, who is the co-curator for Venice. And um, But now that that community's grown, it's kind of wild. It's like I've never had so much interaction with other indigenous artists. And it's kind of amazing, especially because a lot of them are now in the Hudson Valley um, with Forge Project. And so I do, uh, I act as an advisor with Forge. And then just as an artist, you know, I sit on a number of boards. Um, I'm a governor at Skowhegan. Um, I sit on Brooklyn Museum board, the Warhol Foundation board and, you know, try to bring awareness of what's happening within indigenous organizations and communities and artists. So that's, yeah, I think um, also I'm a, I'm a mentor through Queer Arts, which is a, an organization in New York City that tries to bring together intergenerational queer artists, queer and trans artists, when it comes to art making and how to navigate your way through that. So I, this is my second year And that's been actually really rewarding as well. Yeah, so I think I'm also a faculty member at Bard College. And so I've taught there for 10 years. Uh, I'm on a leave of absence right now, um, just due to other commitments. And so teaching is important to me. I definitely needed to step out. And I think, you know, the students who I really gravitate to tend to be, you know, um, queer artists, trans artists, students, uh, students of color, and in particular, like, first-generation immigrants and just sort of coming into this like Western culture, especially when it comes to art. Mm-hmm. So that's been the student that I feel like I really connect with in a way that's impactful for me. So I will return to teaching at some point, but I'm not sure quite in what capacity. Yeah, and I'm a dad, and I'm a husband, and I've been coming to New Mexico since I was 19. So I started off doing an, an uh, apprenticeship, actually, with um, Ernest Maribal, who was Cloud Eagle Studios in Nambe. And he's no longer with us, but um, but that was when I started coming. I was coming every year. And um, at some point when I had kids, we stopped coming for a while, and now it seems like we're back on. So we're like, yeah.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, you just had a really big exhibition at site, Yeah. Um, so that that kind of reconnected you into the community, i sure.
2: For sure. Yeah, and Sight's always been, like, a big deal for me. I mean, I think when I first came here, like, Ernest Maribal, Cloud Eagle, you know, he took part in Indian Market. So came here during the summer, and I got to see him like working with like the hotels and delivering sculptures and making sculptures that you know really fit in this market of collectors. And I also got to see market and like artists on the plaza. And you know, I had feelings about it. I also considered going to IAIA for my undergraduate degree, and that would have been in 9090 90, that I was looking. And I ended up, or no, no, sorry, It was like 92. I ended up going to the Art Institute of Chicago. But I was really, um, I paid attention to IAIA that whole time, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of like how it's changed. I've been here uh, to do critiques with students and the MFA students. And so now they're also our educational partners for Venice, which is really awesome. Wow. But yeah, it was it was great. I mean, SITE has always been sort of a, it's never been situated in the native community here. It's always been sort of on its own, like in the rail, in the rail yard. And so I think it was really great when like me and Nani took over the entire building and it was just a big deal for students in particular at Mm -hmm.
3: IA.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for, thank you for saying that. I really like the conversation around how, things can exist in tandem and feed each other, but they also are very specific. And there's, there's kind of that siloing can cause problems, but it also is important to like nurture, like the evolution of culture. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I always tell people, it's like, I think to, to be an artist, to be, you know, there's like all these ways you can think of yourself as being an artist, but I think, I identify as a contemporary artist specifically not just because I make work in this time but I think when you identify as a contemporary artist you get to mix everything up you know and if you're working with curators and institutions who support that you know you can say like this audience is important to me to get here or like this language is important for us to work in or you know, just sort of like there's different kind of departments when it comes to like outreach. You know, so for instance, in New Mexico, there's of course the students at IAIA, but there's also all the pueblos, and there's also the artists who have been here in in Santa Fe, and the Suiya audience is very different than other audiences. And then I think to see the native artists kind of like start their own things has been really cool to see,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: especially like the other markets that happen during market.
0: Yeah, and I like how you going to school in Chicago and making that decision it's not that you left your indigenous like peers behind or the indigenous art world behind. You're very much like weaving them together in a way that I think is really important right now, especially because indigenous art historically has been so overlooked by the contemporary art world. And so what is it, is there like a methodology behind that? I mean, I know you have a studio and you hire people to support your practice. like. How much of that are you paying attention to like um, creating microeconomies with indigenous people or like what I guess maybe what's the map, the map of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Gibson?
2: I mean, the map is is always shifting. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the great thing you realize about. Um, however we think about maps whether it's like a metaphor or it's real Mm -hmm. it's all movable and it has been moved since the beginning of time right and so those movements have to do with what people's agendas are and i think economies are really interesting to me especially when it comes to art economies and in particular i think the the things i've learned maybe i should say trying to navigate this like map right Mm -hmm. which is really problematic The things I've learned are that the reasons why I believe it's been challenging, one of the reasons why it's been really challenging for Native artists, and when I talk about really the late 19th and 20th century, and I think it was really difficult because, one, people were kind of fascinated by the otherness, right? And there's there's this degree of wanting to maintain the otherness because the other is always going to be more interesting than something we think we know or that reflects us. But then on the other side i feel like it also created this performance for native people that it gave us value if we performed it then we were looked at and we were valued so at some point you have to stop accepting that kind of whether it's admiration or appreciation and the problem with it is it doesn't really go in depth it doesn't make us different from each other we're just this kind of big group of Native Americans that no one really learns anything about specifically how many tribes, how many languages, how many different perspectives on things, and what our relationship is to this land and why it's important. So the work that was being made oftentimes fulfilled this performance, right? And I give those artists a lot of credit because this was a period of uh, total impoverishment, you know, and people just trying to stay alive and support their families and keep their communities just like going at the most minimal levels. So money in a capitalist society is going to be important, right? So if you can sell weavings, if you can sell paintings, if you can sell that market is so important. And eventually the Santa Fe market becomes the third largest art market in the United States. And I think that people are surprised by that. But it's also, um, so it's significant. And I, I love that that exists right if we look at the 20th century that there were there's business people there's native business people who have been successful at their businesses in art making and then where it becomes problematic again is when what i refer to as like the mainstream art world doesn't want the, those worlds to mix because there's a class issue there's taste issues there's sort of a fear of, of making a mistake because they don't know what they're looking at Right, So the tools that have been given are sort of like, well, you can look at it and you can like it for color or for material or because it reminds you of something from the past. But it's really not created a space for living people who are engaging with the world now to express themselves with freedom and still carry along the, the, the fact that they are they are Native and this is a Native perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think... That's kind of what I've been pushing for, and it has a lot to do with language, you know, with how we actually talk about things, and context. Like, you have to have context in order for people to understand, you know, if we, if we put, like, I don't know, I always come up with these ridiculous, like, you know, comparisons, but you won't know, like, if, let's say if we had a basket of apples, you won't know what a good apple tastes like until you try them all, and you're like, I like this apple, and here's why. Yeah. And this apple is sour, and I don't like it. And this apple is sweet, and I do like it. So you need this kind of context for people to be aware of, to know how to determine, like, what's good beadwork, what's okay beadwork, like, what do what do, what does abstraction mean within indigenous perspectives? Like, if you don't have that context, it's really difficult for anything to kind of emerge and sustain from it
0: yeah and also i think there's like you um, touched on earlier there's so much diversity within the over 500 nations from indigenous to turtle island that as you have more and more visibility you start to like deconstruct the coding within each culture right
2: yeah and i think you know the other thing about the studio is it's like i don't want to create you know i always say that my language is always this I prioritize Indigenous voices, but it's not with the intention of creating a new hierarchy. Like, we're also supporting of, like, you know, East Indian voices and, like, um, Japanese, Chinese, like, queer, trans, like, everybody who has ever historically been pushed to this, it's a term that I hate, but the minority, you know, if you've ever been historically called a minority, we're not a minority when we're amongst ourselves. And that's what I think is amazing. And Mm -hmm. it's, like... That's a physical experience that you have to experience to be like, holy shit! Like, this is what it feels like to not be the minority.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, it's it is very emotional. The language hasn't caught up, you know. And I think that that's what that's what your practice is working towards, you know, because language is important. And that, like, the more that we meet with other communities who have historically like experienced these. Oppressive labels, the more we realize our strength, and that's exactly what the work that I'm trying to do is—is is like that kind of like plurality, that coming together, and that realizing. I love the apple metaphor, though, too. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also like you know, for I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about oh, I was talking it was had to do with our programming for Venice, and how people are still healing from from trauma, and I was like. Yes, I believe that's true, and that has to continue, absolutely. But part of what enables healing is just giving a space where people can just not perform, where they can literally just put it all down and just be who they are. And quite honestly, in my experience, that's the most interesting version of that person you're going to meet. But they have to be able to not be afraid or carry anxiety in that space, or even sometimes responsibility. You know, responsibility can feel very overwhelming, and I think in particular for indigenous people it's like you feel so tethered to your community you don't ever feel like you actually are just acting on your own behalf.
0: And I don't think that the contemporary art world quite gets that note. No. Because before, I even notice this with like Chinupa's practice, before he can even talk about his art, he yeah. has to like tell the whole history of his people. Yeah. And what other contemporary art group, I mean, other than other marginalized communities, yeah. has to carry that labor? And I feel like your practice is helping to like... Show another way.
2: Well, I think I did do it for a while. You know, when I would talk to, to curators and institutions, I would talk about where the references are coming from, where the history is uh, coming from. And then at some point I decided, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, And that's, I think, where the struggle came in for me about whether I wanted to continue. Because suddenly people can't understand what you're presenting them without giving them those kind of crutches of how to understand it. And I think for Native people, sometimes, you know, if we if I think about them as like AIDS or what I just referred to as crutches, they're very personal, you know. So to tell my grandmother's story, to talk about my art, didn't feel right. I was like, it's not my story to tell. And I'm not sure that it's actually working the way I think it's working. I think it might just be creating some sort of Indigenous kind of like, you know, Porn for for people to be like to talk Mm. about like poverty and to talk about like you know land allotments and trauma, and so it also shifted me to think about like, well, many people will project those challenges onto native people regardless of who we are. What they don't project is joy, they don't project love, they don't project desire, they don't project dreams, and so that's where I kind of pivoted where I was like, well. If I want to present these people as a fully faceted human being, like these are the areas that are not being presented, mm-hmm. you know? And then even in trauma, there's very specific trauma. Like there's very specific trauma in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. There's very specific trauma to every boarding school that existed, you mm-hmm. know? And then down to the individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. And I love witnessing the way so many... um of our peers are interpreting and telling these stories cleverly. Mm -hmm. So it's like a way to kind of like heal and amplify, but without falling into like that struggle porn or that, yeah. you know, yeah. like I think that it's it's really beautiful witnessing the ways that people are kind of like splicing off and like figuring out how to share these stories in clever yeah. ways through contemporary art. And I yeah. think that that hasn't been able to happen through like the indigenous only art markets, right? Right.
2: Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting because you you realize that the, you know, like I haven't looked at Swaya's eligibility for years, but the last time I looked at it, It felt like it was again it was the script for a potential performance you know about like how do we create value in what i've made and it's not about the work it's about the story that brought it here right and that story to me felt so akin to like kind of uh, like western fascination like it's still that kind of you know, I forget what it's called when you're the person to first pioneer. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of pioneering of like a narrative. And I, I, I will honestly say, I really do support whatever anybody feels they need to do. Like, so I'm not saying this to really critique or I want anyone to feel bad about what they're doing. And I don't think they have to feel good about what I'm doing. Yeah. But I just think that it's like I needed another option. Like, as a creative person, this was not the option that was going to work for me, and so. I had to figure out, well, what is a queer Choctaw Cherokee kid who grew up in Germany and Korea, went to school in Chicago and London, like what where do I wh- what do I need in order to be able to move on? And a lot of that I had to make myself.
0: And did you learn a lot of the um, the skill sets or tools of like how to make that yourself through going to school in Chicago? Or like where where did like the the stepping stones, like, get carved out and created? Like, is it your uh, curiosity around, like, the art world that has helped you to move through it? Because I feel like a lot of Mm. artists get disconnected. They don't know how to even, like, step in or, like...
2: Well, I will say, I mean, just because, you know, when I moved to New York, the majority of my, like, peer group, right, when we were all young artists living in Brooklyn trying to figure it all out, it's a shared feeling across the board, right? Especially for those of us who aren't coming from wealth, right and so we're juggling this dream with i was working literally 70 to 80 80 hours a week you know and i was making work from like you know midnight to 2 a.m and then doing it all over again the next day so of course you're going to burn out you can't you can't sustain that and then when you go into into an opening for instance i was the one who was just like sweating up a storm hiding in a corner running outside to smoke a cigarette to go back in for 2 seconds more to run back out again, you know. And and so it was awful. Mm-hmm. It's hellish and I can't imagine anybody wanting to do it. So I I definitely had lots of years of sort of just wanting to I don't know, figure out how I could actually feel at home there. And I guess you know, really, I, I don't. There was, there was a few options for me. One, I thought I could be a really good educator, which I think I am.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I thought I am a good artist. I know I'm a good artist. I don't think the problem was with what I was making or, or anything like that. And then uh, I think also potentially like uh, an art historian focusing on indigenous art histories was something else that I considered doing. And I think in many ways, I kind of get to do all of those things still now. Yeah. Um, but it just took a really long time of, you know, you, you also learn how to say no. Uh, you learn how to trust your gut about people who you're working with and draw some boundaries. I mean, I think most artists will talk about how much we've endured or put up with You know not great deals you know paying for everything on our own i still pay for some things all on my own it's like i think i hope people don't get the impression that jeff has like a ticket that i can write whatever i want Mm -hmm. and i'm getting i'm gonna get it i certainly have a lot more support now than i ever have but the projects get bigger and the dreams get bigger and i'm 50 now so i'm thinking like okay i know how i know a project can take five years it could take 10 years so what are the things I really want to spend my time on? And how do I want to live my life? You know, I have a family. So it's not just about me, but it's also wanting to have a, what I define as a quality of life for myself. Yeah. Right? And so that's tough. So it's just been, a, it's been a, you know, a lot of years. I will say showing with commercial galleries starting in 2012 helped. And part of that had to do with feeling when someone buys your work right when you have an exhibition and someone buys your work and people are telling you that your work is interesting exciting and important you suddenly feel significantly better than you did before people said this (laughs) thing true and then when you're not having to work 80 hours a week you start feeling a little bit better you know Mm -hmm. and then um, that's I always think about how how experiences shape us and obviously if I'm working 80 hours a week I'm squeezing it in instead of sleeping I'm, not, I'm always like exhausted. I've got a lot of bitterness sitting inside of my soul. like That's shaping me. Yeah. So suddenly when that starts getting a little pressure release, I just started building on that. I've always been someone who's taken whatever I was making, like let's just talk about money, and just reinvesting it back into my practice immediately. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like my life got better. It's just that I had more freedom with my artwork as an artist. Mm-hmm. And I could always say this is unfair, but at some point I learned that it is unfair. Like the inequity in the world, the injustices in the world, they are absolutely true. And that's always what I tell young people. It's like they are simply true. And I wish I could say otherwise, but I can't. So if you choose to go into this and you're going you're gonna to struggle through this, choose something that's worth the struggle. And having one solo exhibition in Chelsea with an art format is not worth the struggle. Mm -hmm. You need something much bigger than that, you know? So whether it's like your quality of life, you want to have a family, you want to engage communities, you know, which is really hard. But if you want to do that, if you want to shift language around something, which is really hard, then you just, you know, going in, you know what you're, you have to be able to remind yourself. I've always needed to be able to remind myself this is why I'm working this hard.
0: Yeah. And that's something we talk about in our family a lot is like the choice, right? Yeah. Like within the chips being stacked against us in so many ways, there's also a large amount of agency of like how we filter that through us, like how we hold on to our joy yeah. and our exceptional like light. Yeah. And the complexity and not yeah, not turn into a dark space, you know, and that's what I really appreciate about your practice is you seem to be rippling out that, that option of light. Yeah. And can you talk about how you hold, hold on to that? Just maybe as far as wellness or mental health, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, part of it, you know, I moved upstate to stop all the voices of New York City because it was really, I just felt like I couldn't think any further it's not that I couldn't think well I couldn't think any further I couldn't develop any more thoughts yeah because you're oftentimes relative to the conversations around you you know so if those are the conversations that are being offered to you again it's about context you have to have someone who can challenge you you have to have someone who can move it along to the next step I you know especially with being an indigenous artist I felt like I was having the same conversation year after year and I was like whoa this isn't going anywhere I'm still in the same conversation And so moving upstate was really about silencing a lot of those voices and giving myself space where I could think and I could make. And I had no idea what that was going to look like at the time because where I'm at now has happened since moving upstate. So that was really important. Having kids was huge for me because I think it's given me something to focus on that is not... It is me, but it's not. It's separate from me in a weird way, you know. And just that experience has been really kind of invigorating for me and for my brain, mm-hmm. and challenging, of course. But nothing will teach you patience like kids, <laughs> like, and just <laughs> that has actually turned around and helped me a lot.
0: They'll tell the you patience. Who, like I it is. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: definitely helped a lot. And I think I've I've built I've built really good people. I mean, when people come to the studio and you get to meet the people who work there everybody always uh, comments on the, what we, we just call it the vibe of the studio. And we, in fact, we're talking right now about sort of how do we maintain the vibe of the studio because we've grown, there's big projects coming up, the studio is gonna feel stresses that we haven't felt before. So we're like, how do we maintain this vibe? And we're talking, you know, we do have managers in the studio, but we talked about um, how to create like lateral management because mm. we're not trying to encourage any hierarchies. And so that is that just someone giving me that language like, "Oh, you need lateral management strategies." And I was like, "What's that?" And they were like, and I was like, "Oh, it makes perfect sense." Yeah. And so, you know, nobody likes nobody likes to be told what to do. Yeah. Um so it's like it is about relationships and And investing in relationships, you know. And we have great, you know, people stay at the studio. We've had people there now for uh, 12 years and then nine years and then six years. So we have people who've been there really committed for a long time. And so that brings me a lot of joy. It's my favorite place to be. I feel totally safe there. I love living upstate. I love having nature around us. And I I genuinely love what I do. I do love what I do. So that's... That's been a lot of it. But I'd say in terms of like personal mental health work, a lot of it is, I think, getting out of situations where you feel like you're being put on display or you're being asked to perform.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, like I'm comfortable right now sitting here with you and I know how to be comfortable with a lot of people. But like sites like family at this point, Santa Fe is kind of like family at this point. I've been coming to New Mexico for a long time. And I'm here with my family. So it's not like, it's like I'm getting to do what I love doing with family, which yeah. is, I don't know. For me, that's great.
0: Yeah. Well, it feels like part of your practice is cultivating community, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is something that I really value and cherish in my practice yeah. as well. It's like, it's not just working with somebody or doing a task with somebody. Right. It's like right. developing developing long-term family friendships yeah and I love that and
2: I think the other thing is I really like about being an artist is at least at least the way that I kind of have envisioned it but stepping away and putting yourself in a position where you can control your environment a little bit more you get used to it in a way that you'll notice really quickly when a narcissist comes in your life who wants to like take it over and manipulate language and like shift stories around and now I have options where I'm just like you can be that person. I'm just going to go this way, you know? I and it's like, that. and I think it's also that because if you're, if that becomes what you're used to, like people just yapping constantly and it's, it's not meaning very much, it's, you know, you will get used to it and that will become your relativity. So you have to experience what it's like to be around like substantial conversations and thought. Mm-hmm. And then you'll notice immediately when you're not around it. And you're like, I need to be someplace where I can go deeper. You know, I, I don't, I don't think about it consciously that much, but where I live, you know, we have our garden and we talk to our kids about growing vegetables. They go to a school where they learn about permaculture. So our day-to-day conversations about, you know, deer poop and where it showed up today, and that means the deer is going this way. I mean, they're very healing for me on a day-to-day basis to keep it so kind of like, I don't know, not about...
0: Grounded. Yeah, 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 (laughs) for
2: sure, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's really beautiful to kind of consider if we want to step into a little bit of what you have just been working on, sure, an indigenous present, the publication, and it feels like it's really a physical archive of exactly that yeah. nurturing of community. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is. I think, um, you know, Janelle uh, and I started working on this project almost two and a half years ago at this point. wow, And so it was a while ago and I, Um, I originally was thinking about doing like a quarterly journal where I would have contacted you or any number of people and said like, Hey, I just want to do like a cool feature on you. Like, but it was more about the time commitment. And then I think somebody mentioned about doing a book instead. And Janelle and I met in 2013 and she organized an exhibition of mine at the ICA in Boston. And um, she and her partner have worked on art books for over 20 years. And so I called her up and I said, Hey, can I just, Chat with you, and by the end of that conversation, it was really kind of eye-opening that a book would make sense, and what role I would play in the book, and um, just having someone to talk to about like where the original inspiration came from, and going like, well, I guess it really goes back like almost twenty years. Like it's like it's like the dissatisfaction of being a bachelor's st- degree student. And wanting to learn more about native artists, and no one being able to direct me anywhere. I mean, at the time, people knew about Jean. No, I learned about Jean then. They knew about James Luna and Edgar Heap of Birds. That was kind of the three people who people would, you know, direct me to. And I'm, I've met all of them. They became mentors of mine and friends. And I really uh, have learned so much from all of them. But it was the sort of like, where are the people my age in my situation? And just also just thinking, I was like, a book in a weird way is kind of like such an easy thing to deliver, right? It's like, and I have always loved editorial imagery. I've always loved beautiful books. I've always loved magazine culture. And so that's the kind of book I was like, I feel like I can't be the only person who wants to see this book exist. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, and I knew it had to be, it had to be a big book. It had to be a big, heavy book that is not apologetic about how much space it takes up or how heavy it is or that you need it shipped to you because you can't carry it in your luggage. <laughs> I'm like, those are all easy things. That's all possible, you know? Yeah. And so that's sort of where, where it started. And I think also just thinking about, you know, the cost of the book, which I had no idea what cost of books were. So for, I, was, I was willing to figure it out from day one. I was like, I will figure this out. And then Janelle um, wrote a grant. Uh, a grant? Uh, yeah, well... Is it a fellowship grant?
1: Grant, <laughs> grant. We wrote a grant application for the Mellon yeah. Foundation. And... Um,
2: Yay, Melon! Yay, Melon! Thank you, Mellon.
1: Um, but maybe I should, since I'm talking now, yeah, introduce maybe, myself. <laughs> oh,
2: wait,
0: wait, who is this
1: other yeah. person yeah. in the room? I know, I know.
0: It's <laughs> trying to sit very quietly. Oh, it's um, so, so great to have you here, Janelle, and I'm excited to hear, yeah, hear you talk about how you came into this project as well. Thanks,
1: Ginger. So the person talking right now is Janelle Porter, yeah. and I um, am an independent curator for the last several years. I live in Los Angeles. And But prior to my independent or what I sometimes call freelance volunteering yeah. <laughs> um, role uh, is that I was a museum curator for 20-plus years working in New York, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Jeffrey and I uh, first came to know his work through this absolutely incredible exhibition that he made at Participant in uh, Manhattan in 2011. 2012. 20. Really? I thought yeah. our show at Boston was 2013.
2: We're okay. 2013. Okay, yeah. okay,
1: okay. Yeah, the math, it grows uh, fuzzy as one grows yeah. older. But um, <laughs> I called Jeffrey, and and you know I don't remember all the sequence events, but I invited him to make a show at ICA Boston where I was curator, and it was his first uh, museum exhibition. Mm-hmm. And we stayed in touch because while well, we... Really liked each other. It's not. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about making exhibitions, the right? The family, like, <laughs> the family, and well, I would
2: yeah. say If I can interrupt, one thing was that Janelle, Janelle's got a really amazing eye when it comes to textiles and craft, like historically craft kind of uh, processes and artists. And so, I think that we also connected in that because yep. I, I love textiles. You love textiles, but Janelle's focus was really on artists who worked in textiles. And so you did the show Fibrous Form?
1: No, um, Fiber Sculpture, fiber 1960 sculpture, to the yeah. Present, which was a, a big exhibition that looked at the history of really like what was called the fiber art movement of the 1960s and 70s, which is an international um, movement based around sculpture. So there were really sort of specific... Um, Moves that these artists who had been confined to an entirely craft conversation mm-hmm. made, which had to do with like scale mm-hmm. and taking the room, um, and it happened in in Europe, in all through the um, the states and Japan. So it's kind of it's a very sort of long involved but fascinating tale. And I worked on that exhibition for four years. And when we did yeah. the exhibition, I'd already been thinking about it for a while. I'd. Um, brought a she- Sheila Hicks' first um, showing in a contemporary art museum in the States was an exhibition that I brought when I was at the ICA Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And that was like work I learned through a book, which I'll sort of like put a pin in because it comes back to some of the, the thinking about an indigenous present. But I'd also done a show in 2009 of artists working in clay. And that was mm. one of the first sort of big museum shows in a while, I should always say, because we know that our market, <laughs> let's call it, I don't like to call it the world ever, I like to call it the market, <laughs> is very cyclical, right? But there was this moment where, where I thought like, what, a lot of people are working in clay and they're making interesting stuff and we're not just talking about craft. Artists like Nicole Cherubini, Kathy Butterly, some of these artists that were doing stuff that just hadn't really been seen and wasn't getting a lot of attention. And I would say from whatever point that I have always worked in my career, which probably came from my earliest training at the Whitney Museum as an assistant, was that there are a lot of artists and histories that were not known. Like everything I learned was not, everything I learned that impacts what I do now, I did not learn in school. I think that's probably... Mm -hmm. Because the content wasn't taught to you? Mm -hmm. No, because I'm of a certain age, and Jeffrey and I are the same age, which is, again, like something else that's so interesting to talk Mm -hmm. about with this project and just art making and what's happening now in terms of visibility for Indigenous artists is the sort of huge generational shifts and vocabularies around the conversations, right? So another pin, because I... I feel like everything you said, I just want to like, take every minute of the last of the stuff that you said <laughs> and be like, okay, there's 10 more things to talk about yeah. <laughs> that are so great and people can learn from. But mm-hmm. that, um, so when I was in school learning art history, the courses went up to like the 1960s, and I was in school in the early 1990s in college. And when I got to working at my first job at the Whitney Museum, the 1993 Whitney Biennial was on view. And my head exploded in the best way possible. Like, I'm sorry, who? What is all of this history? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that biennial was vilified at the time. but it has since gone down to be incredibly important for the artists and conversations that it, it introduced and the voices that it
2: introduced. Were there any Native artists in that biennial?
1: <sighs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I can't answer that question yeah. without, like, you know calling up Siri, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. It's super possible that Edgar Hooper birds was in that, but I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. I don't think so. But again, that 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 time, yeah. conversation was, as you just said, Edgar Hooper birds, yeah. James Luna, Jean-Claude Smith. Yeah. Like those were the artists that were known, they were showing. So, that's so I've in my career looked at artists who aren't so well known. And it's but I've never been super vocal about it. I always Took the tack that like every show I did would be at least 50% women or female identifying artists, but I didn't talk about it a lot. I always like to shift the focus that we would be talking about art and not necessarily like who's making it. Become a cause, like. Yeah, yeah. because a lot of curators do that, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of press departments love to do that. Mm-hmm. Museum departments love mm-hmm. to. Focus on the story
4: mm-hmm. and
1: the trauma and, like, that story. And they will do that. And as a curator, I, always my role in a museum was middleman, middlewoman, middle person. Okay, my job here is to protect the artist and to protect the institution.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Or advocate for the museum and advocate for the museum, or for the artist. But not let the PR department, at, like, free reign over an artist. Like that, you know, they're like, if you
2: want to know. And and I think that's a. Yeah. Well, well, everything that Janelle just said is the reason why it was easy for me to has always been easy for me to talk to Janelle uh, and about Native art in particular, because Janelle would understand about how it has historically been written about as craft and not valued as craft um, in some sort of otherness form. Right. And so I think that I never had to explain that to Janelle. You know, we could just, and Janelle could always jump right in and just be like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, this pot, you know, is really interesting because of whatever. And so I think that's one thing. But the other thing I want to say, and this is to young people and artists who are listening out there, is it's like curators are all different. Mm -hmm. They're all different. Mm -hmm. And there are curators who feel their job is to listen to the artist and to help them realize what it is the artist wants to do. That is your best case scenario. If, if a curator does not say that that's what they're trying to do... Run. Run. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, big, big run you, might, you might have to endure a curator for right, a minute. Yeah, we'll go look at the
1: education. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, and it's really, you know, I think a lot of where museums and people who work in museums come from... You know, in the '80s and '90s, they were just sort of like, "Well, artists should just be happy that they have a show," and that has shifted. You know, the and curators should be happy
1: that they have a job. Yeah, just why we all don't have any money.
2: The number of, the number of artists has like grown. Like artists are much more vocal now than they've ever been before. Mm-hmm. Um, artists do have the power to set precedents in institutions, and uh, that's part of what you negotiate. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think it's. Um, I would say the role of artists, and I also would distinguish, though, that there are people, artists who pursue careers, and I would say, I'm that person, like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And then there are people who are just really good artists, and they may not want to pursue a career. Yeah. And I think that that's a wonderful choice. And the more you're clear about that choice, that it's just like, if that's what you're choosing, you're not trying to engage with this whole market kind of side and that's a valid valid choice and it doesn't mean your artwork is not not wonderful or even better in certain situations you know
0: yeah yeah so how did you I mean what is the temperature of artists that were selected for this publication because there's hundreds and hundreds of people that deserve to be in this publication that are um, our friends yeah but so what was kind of like the determining factor of like are these people who have decided to commit their lives and careers to artwork, and so that's how they made them their way in the book, or?
2: Well, I would that? say just to just to kind of echo what I just said about curators, but you know, Janelle would always say like It's your book, it's your book, dude." <laughs> she <laughs> would always say to me, "It's your book, dude." <laughs> well, I love
1: that. <laughs> also, like, there's like just like before you continue, Jeffrey. I think I want to say. I would love to add one thing to what you're both saying, is that there are a lot of art worlds. Yeah. And if there's anything that um, I feel that my my role as a curator and advocate for artists and institutions is that you can make the choice. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it does come down on you, and then, then it's the choices can be harder to make. But there's so many art markets and worlds. There's the the community... Um, that exists for the occasion that we're here this weekend mm-hmm. for Swaya. There's a whole, you know, ceramic, potter, craft tradition. And I really think that, that one thing that I wanted to do as a curator is say, like, you know, these are sort of like all horizontal uh, platforms with no hierarchy. It, mm. Your hierarchy, there's maybe hierarchies within those bands, but, like, the art world that I have operated in is, I guess, what... I never know the name of it. It's, like, the contemporary art world, the, like, blue-chip art market, the, like, New York-centered, you know, European, like, that model that um, is... Some people think it's, like, the, the... I don't know. It's, like, the highest the loftiest, but really it's where the most of the money is mm. if we're being super Well, it frank. is a capitalist
0: yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And so when uh, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of like what the differences are, it's people saying, "Well, why don't I make as much money for what I make as this artist?" And so so to come back to your question, Ginger, it's like and to you, Jeff, I'll I'm throwing it back to you is that when Jeffrey called me to say to ask, like what would this be? I have been thinking about this yeah. for decades. Mm-hmm. So, like, what would this be? And he knew that I know how to make books. I've made big catalogs for all of the exhibitions I've done. I have a lot of practical experience making books, but a lot of also conceptual experience of, like, why would you make a book? What's in the book? What, how does it feel? What Like, how big is it? Is it hardcover? You know, so all that stuff. And and Jeffrey had a list of artists that were
4: mm-hmm.
1: insp- you were talking with, you mm-hmm. were inspired by, and I Throw it back yeah. to
0: you. Yeah, well, I love the selection of art because there's so much diversity yeah. in there, and it shows that in a way that you don't often get, mm-hmm. a, like, a peer behind the curtain <clears throat> for, yeah. like, the world yeah. of indigeneity right now. Yeah. It's is, is actually becoming, yeah. you know, like the culture is evolving,
2: mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. shows
0: in here. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. why I guess I'm asking. I'm just like...
2: Yeah, I think, you know, so again, when I imagine this, like, quarterly journal you know, so I've had that list in my mind, like who would, who would be amazing, you know, and part of that has to do with like where everybody lives. So for instance, I know like you live in this like off the grid site, right. And you're homeschooling your boys. And so that's, that's this amazing story, right. That's there. And I think, so when it came time for the list, I was, I'm going to go back to, I used to go to a lot of symposiums about native art where year after year, it would be Very similar conversations. And they would always end on the last day by saying, like, well, some really good points have been brought up this weekend and um, really interesting, challenging things to think about. And I look forward to seeing what we all do. And I was just like, this was just not enough urgency for me. I was like, and they also were afraid of contemporary artists who were making things... That they couldn't talk about easily, you know? And I was like, those are the interesting folks that you need to be talking about, Yes, because um, <laughs> we we're like, we've been at those talks, <laughs>
1: which laughing. is part My which husband, is part yes. of because it's like, you know I've, we giggle.
2: I've gained so much from academia, you know, and like reading about other people's interpretations. But I also feel like I just wanted to hear from the artist. And I just wanted to hear from the artist, Like I said, in a place where it's like, you actually don't have to change a thing about yourself. We're just interested in who you are, and it's more about like, do I believe what you're presenting me? Because this is what I always tell my students too. If you're a really good liar, but I believe you, and I get something from your lies, I'm satisfied. It doesn't have to be true, like, but you better be good at it. You better be good at it. But I think the easiest way is you be just, convincing. yeah, you just, just tell your truth, tell your truth, <laughs> look in your, look at me in the eyes and tell your truth and I, there's no way you can fail. There's no way you can fail. So I think a lot of these artists are people who just, you know, I've been, I've been excited by what they've been doing. Um, yeah, certainly their kind of endurance of sort of like, and the younger generations in here have had some Older generations to look at, even one or two generations ahead, who are teaching in schools. We also included artists throughout Canada, you know, and so it's like that political representation is much different than it is in the US. It has its own problems. But I think, uh, so I've been paying attention and I've also been exhibiting, um, you know, Candace is one of the main interviews in the book. She's been somebody who's been working uh, just as long as I have. And has been very exciting since I first heard about her in the early 2000s. You Candace know? Hopkins, we Candace say Hopkins, for the yeah. Shout yeah,
0: shout out to Candace. Shout out to Candace Hopkins. So I've been paying attention
2: to her, and like she's been engaging in international biennials and including native artists, and you know. So I've been paying attention, and I think, and then I'm also aware of the artists who were working in the early 20th century who had no representation. You know. And their families now hold the estates of those paintings. Thankfully, their their families still have the work, and so I think, um, of course, Jean is in there. Uh, James Luna is in there, and artists. You know, Jean, knowing Jean has like set the bar for how much you can take on, and at every challenge, and she's still continued, and so she's just been like a model for me since I met her in my twenties. And um I just always thought every time I think about how hard I was working, I was like, oh Jean, right yeah she was packing up her kids in a car and running around state to state picking up artwork to take to some place to install, then to go make a book you Creating know it was just like incredibly important
1: exhibitions. Wow.
2: So for me I I started there um, and then at some point, was that was about 40-ish artists right away, like who were just rattled them off, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel like I've been watching this moment that we're in now with so much focus on indigenous art. I've been watching this moment build for a decade. And so at some point I was like, this is something unique. We don't know if it's going to sustain. We don't know how it's going to continue, but it is uh, getting saturated Right mm-hmm. and um, the art world, the art market, loves a new market. Oh yeah! <laughs> and the new market, if we if we look at what's happened since I've been paying attention, let's say over the last thirty years, there are a handful of artists who probably continue from that kind of surge, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're Native Indigenous artists were different because I hope at least we're not going to recreate that same model, but. Yeah in the way that we think about community, the way that we feel tethered to other artists and other Native folks, I hope that we find ways to create opportunities for each other. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the book, uh, I wanted to include people who, for whatever reason, feel I felt like they didn't get the attention they deserve, you know, during their lifetime. Uh, and then um, regionalism was not such a big thing for me. Like tribal affiliation was not such a big thing for me. I think these are all artists, also who, in my opinion, I would say have chosen to have a career as an artist.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and that was important to me. I, it would be a very different book if I wanted to like focus on artists who were like really working in their communities, in much more quiet ways that are not about pursuing, you know, a career. Yeah. Um, a also career in a specific in the art market. market. Yeah. In a sense. But I mean, I think like when I started collaborating with artists, uh, you know, some of them don't identify as artists. Mm -hmm. And there was always this thing where it's like, it's not my place to call them an artist. Like they see themselves as a silversmith. They see themselves as a community healer. They see themselves as a ceremonial person and they make something amazing, you know. We also decided to focus on creatives as opposed to just artists. So that's where, you know, some of the choreography, the performance, the poetry, the writers,
1: fashion, fashion, music, artists, music, filmmakers, yeah. yeah.
2: That's where that came in. And um, and then it just became about time. We're like, we need this book to get out in the world and um, we need to we need to draw a line. And stop adding artists. And I was adding artists up until the last <laughs> weeks. Jeffrey called me and it said,
1: um, okay, do you think we could, there's two more people I want to add. Do you think that we can? And I teasingly said, absolutely not. And he said, okay, so I already invited them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, it wasn't yeah. a question. Yeah. 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 Which
1: was typically typically the case, no, but I was like, we'll make it work, which is, yeah. you know, my, that is my role. To, to make yeah. – that was my role in the projects to make Jeffrey's dream
4: mm-hmm.
1: a r- reality in physical form. Because yeah. he, he could have done it. But, I mean, I think it, maybe mm-hmm. it would be great to talk about, like, yeah. some of Nuts and Bolts because from the first, like, when Jeffrey just called me, like, friend, how would I do this? And we had such a generative conversation. And then Jeffrey asked me if I would help him do it. And then we had a lot more conversations about – about how it could get done, about the people involved, about that I am not Native, and what in those conversations about be, might entail, especially because of what we wanted the book to be. Um, and we probably we don't have time to go into that, but that was also um, important to me. I think, significant to, yeah. to you and, and was relied a lot on our past relationship mm-hmm. and about where we come from generation, trust. generationally and, like, opening up the conversation, some of the stuff yeah. we're talking about already. And that um, the designer that we wanted to have for the book is Sebastian Oban, who's Cree, working in Montreal, who's done a lot of really incredible art books. And um, so there was, like, it kind of started to fall into place. Jeffrey already had a list of artists. He rattled them off. I wrote them down. I did a bunch of homework. I probably knew quite well half of the artists, but didn't at all know the other 20. So I just like dug in and did homework. But there are other like really cool things that we just immediately knew. Things we said, like, we want to make a book for kids and young people. It's like what you talk about, Ninja, about the reason for your podcast when you started it nine years ago, which is, how do we make something for the kids to see community that they don't see? How how do you become something if you don't see it in the world? I mean, I would say my experience as a woman in the world coming by our history was like, it was all guys. You learned about guys. You learned about men. You learned about white men. And then you had to find, like, the little, like, index, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, wait, who is this again? Well, that this, like, no, super no. tiny back, uh, small print in the back of the book like one of my first jobs was at A I R Gallery, which is um, was one of the first women's cooperative galleries in New York City, and I was like a dummy when I got that job. I didn't know. I was like the internship I could get in the early '90s, and all of a sudden I find myself in like this legendary female feminist movement cooperative, I'm like okay, I did not learn about this in school. Like, okay, let's talk about Nancy Spiro. Let's talk about all of these artists that um, I was not learning about in school. Um, We talked about also that we wanted to make an expensive book as you already mentioned Mm -hmm. that Jeffrey said a lot that
2: he wanted to make a big sexy book
1: Mm -hmm.
2: it was more that it was big and sexy not that it had to be expensive
1: yeah it didn't have to be expensive we didn't really know yet I mean we sort of knew
2: big and sexy (laughs) not a bad combination let's just be clear (laughs)
1: but there were real reasons for that it wasn't I know like we, we always laugh about it because it sounds funny but in reality Jeffrey had mentioned to me this sort of usual speech that he got from a lot of top-down art professionals like myself who would say you're that's just too expensive people won't pay that mm-hmm. or like that but we can't make a book that big because people don't want to pay that for native art or something you know like you'd heard it so many times right well one
2: of the things is like who's the audience for this book who's
1: the audience <laughs> you know who's
2: the audience it doesn't have an exhibition attached to it who's we the heard audience it for endlessly. the book and, yeah, and, and and one thing that I want, I'll just add, and I'm going to let you continue, but was that I kept asking both the publisher, and and Janelle was very supportive of this, but I said, we have to think of this more like an art project mm-hmm. than we're publishing a book. It's an art project in the form of a book, because really the goal is about how it impacts once it's out in the world. Yeah. I didn't care about sales. I
0: see the in, that it's intuitive yeah. when you look through yeah. it. Like, there is there is like a visual intuitiveness yeah, to it for absolutely
2: sure.
1: and when you, we i'd like to come back to this but to your point jeffrey we call it an artist book about artists and there are a lot of reasons for that that comes back to like how artists why they're in this book as opposed to as you said all the other artists out there who might deserve to be in a book like this so so just the other point that i was wanted to bring up is that because we knew we were going to make a big book we knew immediately that we wanted to donate as many books as possible to communities, to home communities. I
0: love that, yeah.
1: So that was like that was like the third conversation, Jeffrey, that you and I had before we even started talking to artists, which is that we are going to figure out a way to donate this book to anybody who maybe can't afford a $75 book, which is a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you walk into a bookstore and you see a $75 big, heavy book, and you're like, do I want that? You know?
0: So that We just was... sit there for hours on the floor and look <laughs> through it and read yeah. it.
1: And then we sort of said, okay, how do we want to make this? And it was started with, we're gonna do studio visits. And this was still kind of locked down. Not locked down, but like pandemic. So it's early twenty twenty one. And we started making appointments with ours we went in no particular order. I remember I think our first studio tough, visit yeah. was Eric Paul Reich. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, our first day, we would do these chunks of studio visits. And the first calls, it was like, I remember being a little nervous, like, okay, we're going to do Zoom studio visits, which are always awkward, right? <laughs> and you, we're going to um, talk to people about their work. And we um, asked for an hour from the artist in the book. We paid them $250 for the hour. Jeffrey would tell them about the book. Mm-hmm. And then we would both basically, like, I would sort of kick off. We just got into this kind of formula, like, Jeffrey is a very busy practicing artist and I made it my duty to get really knowledgeable about the artist's work, typically online, figuring out what they do, which is what I do for any studio visit. Any artist that I work with is I know what the hell they're doing before I walk in. Because you want to like skip all the labor. Yeah. The the, like what are you doing? When you come so you find out as much as possible and we would have these great studio visits and we would talk to them about a lot of things that Mm -hmm. we had talked about that were really important to you.
4: Mm -hmm. Indigenous
1: concept of beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. What is abstraction when it comes to the work that they're doing? Um, What is important for them to show in a book like we're making? Mm -hmm. And so we would like ask questions, but mostly let them talk, take a lot of notes. We recorded all those calls. We made an archive like you're doing, that we want to find an institution who will, you know, house it. Mm. They're super informal conversations, but we talk to every single
2: person in the book. You're eating lunch on a lot of those. You're eating lunch, yeah. <laughs>
1: Jeffrey was definitely on his lunch right? You'll
2: see me dip under the camera every now <laughs> and again to get a bite and come back up and I know, shoot. I was
1: sort of re-watching yeah. some of them, and I'm like... Oh, Janelle, your listening face is very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Well, a podcast um, birthed from this book would be incredible when you have time. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And then we
1: also, like in terms of doing homework, I want to shout you out because I learned about your podcast, you know, from like internet rabbit holes. And I started to deep dive into the conversations that you have done. And I learned so much from them because I was on a pretty steep learning curve. I would say I would have a general working knowledge of the various conversations. But what we were going for was specificity. Yeah. You know, that that indig- indigenous art is not a monolith. Like, how can we bring in specifics? Right. How is How does Jeffrey's Choctaw and Cherokee tradition or upbringing show in his work? And how does a curator who's making a contemporary art show put words on that
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, that have to do more with a contemporary art conversation yeah. than these things that I would say it is endlessly complex. And Deep. yeah. and't <laughs> it, wouldn't it be great if we let it continue to be endlessly complex, then start to like put, slot everybody into categories and add more complexity? Yeah. than yeah. less. I mean, that's been the problem. Yeah. And is it stripping away yeah. of like, mm-hmm. well, you know what? He's Native American. Let's just talk about his work in that yeah. lens. Yeah.
2: We talked to you know most of the artists. I don't know if we asked every artist this, but we would say like, can you talk about a piece of writing where someone's written about your work that made you really happy? Yeah. And there were some people who were like, no, no it has happened. never happened.
1: <laughs> has never happened.
2: And for similar reasons, you yeah. know, across the board, and and yeah. so you know we also made it a point from the beginning that we would we would we would not in the book use artists work as illustrations of writers talking about you know broader topics i love that um because and it wasn't cuz i don't understand the purpose of that and it does happen in the book in different places but if that's where we put the artist's work it was also shown in a full page spread elsewhere that it wasn't the only representation of their work and and also for the contributors who I'm so thrilled with the contributions that we've gotten, um, we didn't we asked them to not write about artists' work specifically, yeah. but to talk about their experience leading up to this moment of so much indigenous representation going on. Yeah. More There should be more, but in terms of the past, more than I've seen during my lifetime, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, you can really feel that in the publication, and there's just a fluidity within that. And I love that um, when it first came in the mail to our house, just flipping through it with my kids. And them just being so thrilled and inspired to see so many of their aunties and uncles. Here comes the tears. In the, you know. (laughs) Here comes the tears. But it was just, it was so beautiful because it was was accessible to, like, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old and they're just like uh, like putting their finger across the images and like really like responding to it as like they're a part of that right. too right. and you captured that right it's just exactly what we wanted to make what you just said I mean that's where
1: that's where like oh my god Jeffrey and I probably were in tears like half the the conversations lot, that we yeah. did and he every time he he starts and I start and I start and then he starts <laughs> but there were so many there were a lot of emotional moments there were yeah, there were a lot of emotional moments. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the, um, I think making it for kids and for people to see themselves on the pages, mm-hmm. um, that's why it became such a such a big picture book. And also that,
4: <clears throat> it's
1: hard for me to talk when I'm crying, so I'm going to really try to stop. But that when um, we we didn't want to make a book like any book out there, we didn't want to make one of those, you know, while very serviceable and wonderful, those like, compendiums Mm -hmm. about painting or medium specific or something. I have some tissues. Um, (laughs) That are, uh, you know, where there's a little text. It's very performa, and they pick like six pictures. We just wanted people to look at pictures. But we Mm -hmm. also wanted, we also told everybody that we talked to in the book from the writers to the artists that they've already made everything. We don't want them, we didn't want to put any labor on anybody. We said to everybody super clearly, we want to know what you would like to show. We send us, like, this is the, these are the pictures that we would like to include, but if there's something that you don't want in there or, like, there's something else that you have, please send it. We want it. include it. When we talk to somebody like Lely Long Soldier, we had such an incredible conversation with her, and her book had recently come out, Whereas, which is, you know, such an incredible book of poetry, which basically as, spins off of the very, to use like the most like uh, underwhelming language for an underwhelming thing, the apology that President Obama gave to Native Americans in boarding school. And Lely writes this incredible series of poems about this. And we said, well, we could reprint something, you could write something new. And she said, you know what I want to include? I want to include this text called... Now you will listen. Trust issues with American schools and the care of our native children. She calls it an experimental essay, and it's. She sent it to us, and it. We were like floored. Yeah. Floored, and it's so perfect because it is about kids, and when we talk so much about like we want the book to be for kids and for teens and for young artists and for old artists. Yeah. And this this incredible text she writes is about a homework assignment, that she talks with her child about. And then the part two of the piece is about the 215 graves found at Kamloops Indian Boarding School in Canada. And it just like, it will just, it destroys you Mm -hmm. as it should, right? And then Philip Deloria, who Jeffrey had recently spoken with um, in a Zoom conversation, and he's such a brilliant historian and has written so many great books, including one about his great aunt yeah. Mary Sully who is like now one of my absolute favorite artists and I basically write fan letters to Philip Deloria like you know what, what's happening now with Mary Sully like when is the show with Mary Sully <laughs> but he, uh, but he wrote an incredible absolutely incredible experimental so text yeah. that is a kind of mining of an archive and a it's, it's it's a so
4: fiction. Mm.
2: It's a fiction. And what's amazing about Phil's contribution is that this was really an opportunity for him to not fulfill, like, a, a request for, like, what to write about or how to... This was, like so you can write anything cuz yeah. it's 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 really just about your perspective mm-hmm. like we're showing you something to respond to but yeah. really it's up to you how you want to it we told him about the, the book
1: we showed images that we were thinking about
2: yeah and so it, i think it's such a it's such a great piece of writing but it, i guess it is maybe different than what he normally writes like
1: definitely and yeah. he put himself out there i think every person too yeah. that we asked to write text for the book to to contribute in some way came back to us and said okay, so I wrote something that I don't normally yeah.
4: do. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, you know, they, they put themselves in a different space and they made something extraordinary. Or we reprinted a text that Adam and Zach Khalil wrote about filmmaking because we were talking to them about different ways to contribute because they do so many different kinds of things. We included their work as filmmakers, and we also included their work as part of New Red Order because both are, you know, sort of equally um, great contributions. But mm-hmm. I just loved this text that they had already written, Native Videographer Shoot Back, which is inspired by their mother, who had um, a poem that she wrote, which is included as part of their text, their, their mother has passed on, which is about the um, um, white anthropological filmmaking and research and how Native peoples need to do that work of the anthropology and anthropological filmmaking. And I just thought, like, the people that read this book, who are a primarily white mainstream art audience, which is another audience that we are talking to, that I am part of, I want them to read this essay. Mm -hmm. And they might not otherwise read it. So there was other, like, moments that we thought about like that.
0: Well, that's what I love about it, because having an artist who's an indigenous artist, like be able to respond to the way you've been viewed or you've been labeled or you've been reduced to a didactic, you know, it's like you can see there is that care. You can see the tenderness of like, actually it's really important that artists and indigenous people tell their stories on their terms, but not in a silo, you know? So you're speaking to like the large art market you're speaking to, the global art market. Yeah. But it's from that space of care. Like, you might not understand it, but it's important. And there
1: you go with authorship. Like, who's making it? Who's the artist that's making this book about artists?
2: Yeah. And I think also, like, I think we were aware of that the whole time. We feel like that this book is made in the model of a book that would succeed in that world. So it's more about... There's, like, definitely an exchange of, like, space, right? Because I think... For me, as an artist, I have had a lot of support from non-native institutions and non-native curators, and I've had some really great experiences with those people. I've learned a lot, and so I love to invite them into this side of the world and to say, like, come enjoy, like, because when you when you come here, it's about food, it's about music, it's about community, it's about art for sure. That's what brings us all here. That's the destination sport, but I was like, <laughs> but there's so many other components, and I feel like. It, it was also just wanting to create a space for Native artists in this other kind of world. So, And to me, that's sort of, you know, with the things that we're facing collectively, like, I mean, just even think about climate and politics. And it's just, it's going to take all of us. Yeah. Like, it's going to take everybody. And we have to be able to open up spaces where everybody feels that they're welcome to contribute to it. Yeah, mm.
1: absolutely. I... I was thinking, Jeffrey, just now about, like, the conversations that we had. Like, we we didn't just spend time talking to artists, which, you know, we had a lot of conversations about the book, of course, because we were just working on it. And, like, who were we talking to? Mm-hmm. I think one way that I always saw audience is when you're in an institution, when you're in a museum, you talk about audience endlessly. And then you talk about audiences, right? So it's <laughs> – but – and and I always – thought that for the way that I worked was that the first audience was the people who worked in the museum because if I could not get the people who worked in the museum that worked their asses off to put help me put my show on if they weren't into it the what's the point yeah like if the if the guy that does AV is not interested in what's on view in the museum you're dead you're dead in the water like there's nowhere to go with that and this book, I would say, is like there's a first audience, a second yeah. audience, and third audience. And we know who the first audience is, mm-hmm. like who yeah. we want the first audience to be. Yeah. But there's such a um, porous border in these audiences for this project. Yeah. It's like it's an easy leap to some. And I think that that also comes out of a conversation that Jeffrey and his work and gender and like my what I've done as a curator and gender and the way that we talk to each other about the project. And then but I also I would love to to just highlight this that when Jeffrey called and said this is a project I wanna do, he was willing to like figure out how to pay for it. It is not cheap to make a book. It is just not. And I was willing to because I have other work and because I, work, I live in a two-income house and we don't have a lot of bills and we're used to living on no money because we're art nonprofit workers, to go like, okay, I may or may not get paid. And yeah. we sort of talked about this, like, transparently yeah. immediately, which yeah. is yeah. for he the wa- love. He wants me to do this and I'm willing to do it no matter what. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, we're going to figure out how to pay for it, which is how, you, how do you figure out how to pay for anything? You start calling people that support what you do and you say, will you write us a check for this really exciting project? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that I, from a past from past projects, had a contact at Mellon Foundation, called her up and said, hey, so I'm helping the artist Jeffrey Gibson make this project. I think it's Landmark. I, th- I know it is. And she just said, um, yeah, send me more information immediately. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then it, with Mellon, you get asked to apply. So Mellon fully funded this project, to, we didn't have to, um, we didn't have to, uh, for what we initially wanted to make, um, design, paying all the artists, mm-hmm. paying for printing what you have to do to publish, to, to pay for this book.
0: Yeah. We didn't have that. to
1: call a lot, I'm going to say this, a lot of white people to pay for the book. We got the money and it felt great and it gave us total Freedom, which we knew we already had, we had it, we wanted it, we wanted to retain it, but being supported in that way by the melon which is a social justice foundation,
4: mm-hmm.
1: was like mm-hmm. I, that was a my my spirit really lifted that day about like oh, yeah, it's, that was, it's yeah. paid for, and we can do it as we wanted.
0: Yeah. I love that. That's the way that we operate in our household as Mm. creatives is like you want something and you don't worry about how it's going to come to be. You just start visioning it. It's like a form of speculative fiction (laughs) almost (laughs) because you're like this needs to be and with or without anyone's help. And And you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes when you believe in it. It spreads
2: well. Even with timing, you know. Originally, we thought this would come out a year ago, and I remember we were getting, you know, I was like, I was like, it's just not. We ready were getting yet. behind. We're not, we're we not were there. Getting behind. We're just not there yet. And and I would, you know, I hate, I hate to like, I never pull this out unless I feel like it's really true. But I was like, <laughs> Indian time, Janelle. Indian time to you know. She's like, what's Indian time? And I was like, it'll happen when it's supposed to happen. Don't worry. <laughs> and
1: I was like, <laughs> is this real? This person will just not email me back.
2: I did
1: learn a lot. I'm also a very uh, uh, very organized, very.
2: Uh, yeah. But it couldn't be a better time, you have to admit. No, I'm just saying, it's going to gonna be right. Show.
1: It's going to be right. And, you know, that was cool that. I mean who knew? Yeah. We started this book like I said in January 20, 2021, Jeffrey started thinking with his with his partners with his curators that like hey, let's tr- let's try Venice. Yeah. And you know, they've been working that for a long time. It takes a long time for it to finally be announced and I know we're going to the segue of Venice. Yeah. So, I don't know if there's maybe a couple more things you want to add about the book.
2: You know, I think I think. Well, I just wanted a couple of things that that you know we called it. I called it an equitable distribution plan. Yeah, that's but how we try nations. to talk about it. That's yeah. beautiful. And so the idea was that whether we fundraised or if it was me paying for it or whoever was paying for it, we were going to distribute books to communities without the expectation of them paying for sh- the book itself or shipping. You know, and then we realized that the uh, artists all talked about their home communities. So we basically offered them each five books. So we're like, you can have a book, and you can name four other places where you want the book to go who you feel like this book should be there. This list that we've received is, like, such an incredible list because I can't think of one person who would know how to put this list together. Or
0: even know all those places, just in general, like, places to fund and support. Yeah. The range uh, and the
1: list is everything from... Someone's high school art teacher
2: to, yeah, which is awesome.
1: Um, you know, and, and of course a number of like local communities. But it's the way we asked people too. You know, we we really did say, truly, it's anybody that you want to have the book, yeah. and we could, you know, kind of prompted them like think about.
2: There's some grandmas on there. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, some grandmas. Yeah, and like think about <laughs> who is really
1: important to you because you could have had that high school art teacher, yeah. elementary school art teacher <sighs> who really got you thinking and. So we have, you know, so okay, sixty artists times four, two hundred forty. I mean, it's my dream, and I, I think we share this dream. But like, I'll just say it's mine because I don't want to put anything that we get a book to like at least the f- over five hundred and sixty recognized communities in the states, and then you have Canada. So like, how can we get all mm-hmm. like? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be amazing if we we're like got oh, a thousand books out to to people on this content continent and. And then we should say, too, that we're doing that. So the way that you make a book, and I think it's important to say how the sausage gets made because this is 60 artists. We're not going to make another book with 60 more artists. We want right. other people. We want people. We, this is a little bit of a dare. Yeah.
4: This is a present,
1: and this is a dare Yeah, to say, okay, if you're like – yeah. Thing. Well, where's the where's this person? Where's that person? Please, 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 make a book. Like, well, Derek call accepted. me. I, will, yeah, I, know, I, will, I know, Call me. I, I will like give you any counsel, like how to make a book. I am there for it. Yeah. But that um, this is this is one. Mm, this is one. That's beautiful. Let's see more. Yeah. And that, but so the way this works is like we help. We put money in to pay for the book. You get a certain number of copies for your money. They came to Jeffrey's studio. They're sitting in Jeffrey's studio. We are mailing those out mm-hmm. to no. the communities. There's no, the
0: publisher; they're not equipped to do it. They have their limitations. That's what it comes down to with true like visioning like that. Yeah. Though you do have to just roll your sleeves up and do yeah. it to match your vision. Yeah. Right. Jeffrey yeah. and I mailed all the yeah. books out to the artists a few weeks
1: ago because we were just getting behind Yeah, and I happened to be in Hudson to yeah. see the incredible <laughs> Indian theater show and the performance that he did with Ariel Twist who's in the book and mm-hmm. Emily Johnson did a an performance and she's in the book and it was like Monday we mailed out 60 books because yeah. like yeah. Jeffrey and I with tape and we had, some, we had some out but like Antonia Oliver, who also helped us with a lot of the components of the book. But Jeffrey was like, okay, yeah, come up. We're just going to mail books.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: yeah, we had a lot to do. Yeah.
2: But I think uh, the other thing was that just I knew that I didn't want anyone else's name on the book. So that the the importance to me of, like, remaining independent was mm-hmm. really important. I love that. And so... The thing about Mellon was Mellon didn't actually have any sort of input on content or they didn't give us okay, any restrictions no. in any yeah, way. No. They really funded the idea, like the project. So we got to make the book. This is the book I envisioned. This is the book I wanted to make. It's, there's no compromises here. Yeah. And so I'm thrilled about that. And then since then, we have gotten some support in helping with the mailing out, like this distribution, which I think I always knew. But Yeah, um, we need a little
1: bit more money to, to mail yeah. these books and possibly get more books and mail... More books, So we have some, should we name? Yeah, we our, can. Yeah, so Forge Project is, is has offered some assistance, as as has one of uh, Jeffrey's Galleries Roberts projects. And I think we'll probably um, draw some more, frankly, as the book gets more out there in the world. Yeah. One more thing I would love to And the
2: book is in its second printing.
1: The book is already reprinted. Dang. Yeah. And we think it's going to... And it's, by the way, has not actually even released yet until yeah. August 23rd. Yeah. We're here... Yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow is the it, it, tomorrow we're having this launch. great launch yeah. at Site, which has hosted us, which is like a dream too to be here during the Swiya weekend and you know, do a big party for our contemporary artists. We, Ginger, you talked about the intuitive feeling that you got from the book, which is so mm-hmm. encouraging to hear because it's what we wanted to make. And when we work with Sebastian Oban, yeah. it was like, How are we structuring a book like this? And you know, we talked with Sebastian a lot about um, sequencing of images about um, the kind of typography
4: yeah. that's
1: being used to to and who that audience is um, Sebastian talked a lot about you know a kind of even type size that's readable for for elders and um, he does a lot of work with with typography he has written a creed manifesto of typography which is really fascinating and um, just about different like in terms of even different um, um, Cherokee alphabet and things like just, I learned a lot from him too. Um, I mean, I was such, you called me a nerd so many times for like all the reading that I did and all the, like, I was like, I'm, I reading, I'm reading this book in the most fond <laughs> yeah, way. Exactly. Like I tend to deep dive. I tend yeah, to over-prepare. Yeah. I was like, yeah. look what I'm reading. And Jeff was like, Oh my God, you're like, I am, you know, I haven't even read that book. Yeah, like, but, but that, okay. So here's how we wanted to, to present the, the, the book. We wanted it to be totally immersive. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're in a book, you're in a book. It's whole, you're holding it on your lap. It's just you in the book, right? Mm-hmm. It's very unlike an exhibition, but we wanted to make an exhibition in a book. And we got physical. We got tactile material. We made selections of images. We winnowed it down from like 15 pictures per artist. Jeffrey and I just on Zoom together, winnowed down pictures. Okay. Or we would say, oh, remember... Tiani Whitehawk like talked about this. Like, let's look. Let's use this image of her work, or yeah. that happens sometimes. But super intuitive. And Jeff would say, "Oh, I like that picture," and I would say, "I like that picture." But then we printed out all the images and started laying them on the floor mm-hmm. and thinking about different ways it could flow. And we were talking about topics, but we knew we weren't going to do anything thematic or regional yeah. or like even by material. And I, you know, and Jeffrey, like, I would. It was just a flow, and he would push on me and say, like, Janelle, like, you're being way too much a curator. And I would that was really educational for me, too, to kind of go, like, oh, wow, I am being too much of a curator. Like, we're not just going to put those things together because they look good. Yeah. We're going to put those things together because we're thinking about the conversation that we had, and we think it's going to show. And then our final, like, way we sequenced it is we made the pictures really small, and we got together, and we just went... In a room together, Jesse and I, boom, picture. Oh, this one. And Jeffrey would just Mm. hand me a picture, and I would tape it up. He would hand me a picture. I would tape it up. I would grab something. I would feel like, okay, this one now. And we just went. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's how. You created an art piece. Yeah. 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 And then we sent it to the designer, and we said, okay, do this. And then we played then we, more. For,
2: I remember our list got confused, and our numbers went <laughs> off. Our numbers went off. We were like, do you remember? <laughs> like, you were yeah.
1: like, like, I don't like, know. Yeah. It You're was late that night. you got to weird sloppy document yeah. pictures of how we did things. And then it was, it put. you know, how did the text flow in? Where did they come in? So so mm-hmm. what do you have in this in this beautiful catalog? This book is, like, basically around, like, 25, 30 pages of double page spreads, images, things playing off each other, a totally like intuitive flow, and then a text, and then again. Mm -hmm. And so it also gets really rhythmic. Yeah. Which I think when there is rhythm in something, it's really comforting to lots of different kinds of
0: people who might be looking at this book. Well, there's a, also surprise in that, too, because mm. you're like, oh, you're, this isn't just like the Lakaluk section or the Demiopne right. section right. second. Like all of a sudden, because we are all in community with each other, all these artists are playing off of each other in their practices, learning from each other, growing up together right now and learning from each other as elders and young people and that's in there.
2: You know what? It, it, this will make sense to you, I think. But my editing eye and my editing brain comes from uh, from DJs. Yes. It come, it comes it's from, from, yeah, it's a mixtape. Yeah, it's <laughs> a mixtape, and it comes from sampling. And you have you could sample from a hundred years ago. You can think about future, you can sample from something that just happened, you can sample from a conversation, and you can mix it all together into, like, this journey. And so that's how I think about things. And the reason why there's no chapters, like, now it's, you know, textiles and weavings is because that breaks up the journey like when you're on it you just want to like flow sweat it out you on can the like, yeah you can come into the club at 2 215 225 <laughs> 235 and you're going to be embraced right and so it's like you don't want to feel like you have to be there for the start of something you just get to dip in yeah, unapologetically dip out and come back when you want to and that's how the book is supposed to work you're supposed to be able to pick it up for like 10 minutes, read one of the entries, put it down, come back, pick it up again, revisit. That's so
0: dope. I love that mic drop. (laughs) Yeah, that's really,
2: but that's where I, I know a lot of people always are like, how does music totally relate to your work? And I was like, it's actually such a big deal from growing up through going from analog Music into like digital and like DJs and sampling and mixing and all of that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, like, you can see you can yeah. see it. It's yeah, it's like a tangible physical version of a mixtape, and yeah. I love thinking about it like that. Yeah, for I sure. One other thing I just too, wanted. Nice. Yeah, one <laughs> thing I wanted to like as we close out and like start talking about the next big project is, um, I just wanted to kind of talk about. I haven't gone through every single page, but I didn't notice your artwork in there when I thumbed through it with my children. not in there, no. And so why did you decide not to put yourself in there? I mean, now that we've talked about it, I understand, but I'd like to hear it from you.
2: Well, okay. So I did an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum in 2020, which was called When Fire is Applied to a Stone, It Cracks. And that was a show where I brought objects out of the collections to contextualize my work. And it's always been about like, this doesn't actually start with me. It's kind of like giving credit to ancestors for like things they've done that I've learned from. Yeah. And so we showed a lot of like late 19th, early 20th century objects that are quite beautiful that show like, you know, a lot of pattern, a lot of color use, a lot of material use, a lot of change happening at the time. And it was really to acknowledge this context that I feel like I have learned from. And so we did not do a catalog for that, but the catalog would have been about that. And so that idea of a book that was about showing the kind of connections between things was still sitting in my mind. And I think when it came time for this book, we thought, well, do we split the book up and talk about Jeff's practice and then show other artists? And I was like... That's not really what this is about. This isn't really a, actually about me. This is, and so oh, through a few conversations, we initially realized we we're like, I just wasn't needed. I just wasn't needed. We didn't like, talk about it. Like how I'm yeah. present is in the editing and yeah. in, in the selection, and it is. I don't want to. I, I wouldn't call it an artwork, but I would call it like an art project for sure. Yeah. and it is my art project that. I envisioned and that um it's not so dissimilar in the way the artworks come together i mean i janelle janelle was super necessary in realizing this and so like working with somebody to realize a format that i don't know how to produce by myself you know yeah but i feel like that's and then my introduction um was important um to talk about that but Yeah, I feel it feels great, but that's also been happening in my practice, like in collaborations, when I collaborate with people, sometimes I think it's hard for people, but I really do try to step back and just tell people it's like, I'm here to support you, but I don't want to get in the way of your own thing that you're already doing. Like, I'm asking you to bring something to the table that I am fascinated with that I don't do, that you do, it's yours. And so if you'll contribute it, that's great. But, but yeah, I, the, the standing back thing is kind of a awesome thing.
0: Yeah. It's a real skill to hone too. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's like a, it's a discipline for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's something that is my whole job as a curator to kind of stand back. I mean, the way that I work anyway is to say like, okay, Jeffrey, what is the thing that you want to do? And Mm -hmm. it's what I've always done with artists and I mean, can we talk for three more hours, Ginger? Because we have
0: a little bit more
1: time. No, no, but
0: the, the book—the
1: <laughs> yeah. book is something to be so. I mean, I feel so honored and lucky yeah. to ha- that Jeffrey yeah. said, "I want you to work with me on this," and he made me a full partner. We yeah. did this together, and he—he he gave me that. There's a lot of roles I could have played on this book, yeah. but we—he decided. We decided that we were going to in terms of making it co-edited, it's his idea. You know, it was very important that that's right there on the title page. This is edited by Jeffrey Gibson, yeah. but we decided like in the back that, you know, that it says co-edited because we did everything together and it's what, you know, we decided. And
0: yeah,
1: and I really, but I had to look to him and say like, is, is this okay with you? Do we want to do this? How do we want to do this? I really, I'm used to kind of like being behind the scenes. I'd like to add this because you asked this at the beginning, during the two and a half years we have worked on this book, so much has changed in terms of the right. visibility of artists. And it was like, we were just watching yeah. it happen. Yeah. And from start to finish, we're like, okay, whoa. And you know, for, we're in the pandemic, then we're out of the pandemic, and then we see several of the artists in the book get big New York galleries and big yeah. LA galleries. We see attention being paid to exhibitions, et cetera, and we're like, "Holy Mm -hmm. crap!" It was a little bit like whiplash. Jeffrey and Candace Hopkins talk about this in the interview that they do,
0: beautiful,
1: um, which I think is an like a really great, an entirely great interview, a really great Mm -hmm. nugget because Candace, who's been working as long in the field as Jeffrey, also states that she is surprised by the speed. At which Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is market forces. I think we have to admit that. Of course. But also, it's cultural changes. I do not think that this is a trend. I'm hoping with all my heart this is not a trend. But it's not a trend if we all work our asses
0: off. Well, also, if agency is guiding it, Mm -hmm. like people like Jeffrey who are put in positions of power and privilege within the art world, Mm -hmm. if you are leading. And helping to kick the door down, not even open it. There, yeah. there, yeah. It won't be a trend because indigenous people are here. They're existing, thriving, and evolving cultures. Yeah. So that, that can't be a trend.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And look at how long it's been going on too. So
1: like what does John always say? Like we break the buckskin ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I kind of like I am only speaking about this because I'm speaking for what I can do as a curator and a writer. And an advocate for artists and what I have learned over all of my years of working, but has grown quite keen mm-hmm. in the last few, I have to admit, you know, with the pandemic, with the murder of George Floyd and with working on this project, like I have learned a lot. And so, and, but we also see that there are other non-native curators that are fully jumping in with a lot of absolutely
0: positive intention but that we have a lot to learn whenever something new comes there is a lot of learning a lot of discomfort and a lot of uh, yeah (laughs) and a lot of harm that can be caused but like i think that like having a resource like this will help to mitigate that for Mm -hmm. sure Mm -hmm. and so i'm also wondering like I feel like there's this explosion happening just, I'm witnessing it because my partner's like right. a Native American artist and just like, uh, buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> on, Everybody know? wants something. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it's just beautiful, but I'm even wondering like, I don't I think this is just the beginning. Yeah. And like I have Spidey Sense and I'm like, oh, this isn't this isn't it. This is right. just the beginning. Right. And so I'm wondering if we can step into talking about the Venice Biennale and how you're sure. the US representative and how you think that might change and shift and evolve like indigenous presence in the contemporary art market to last and sustain.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think oof.
0: And how stressful that is to yeah, have to hold that. Yeah,
2: I think <laughs> I mean pressured. It's pressured. I uh, God, there's so many answers to that. I think.
1: think, Let me see. Where can I start? Where can (laughs) I start?
2: Okay, so I will say that from the announcement of knowing that I was selected, each week is a different wave of emotions and challenges that come right. And so the first one. Uh, I definitely had like imposter syndrome. Like I walked into my studio and everything looked like crap. I was like, oh my gosh, why would I get chosen now? Everything looks horrible. And then you realize it's like, oh, it's it's another form of like body dysmorphia where you know, yes. you get through it. And I've been in a lot of therapy in my lifetime. So I've got some skills, but then you get through it and you're just like, you come in one day and you're like, oh no, it actually looks good. It actually looks good. And um, then there's just, you know, my studio team just waking up one day and being like the, the excitement comes down a bit and you realize we've got to get this done there's
0: a lot of work there's a
2: lot of work to do and then there's all this like communication and strategy that has to happen and a lot of meetings a lot a lot of meetings nine
1: months to make
4: a massive
2: exhibition we actually started producing the work in um january because of how long it takes us to make things and so even if we didn't get it you you know we would have a leg up. we would have a leg up yeah and so Um, We knew that, and the galleries that I work with have been very supportive, and I work with Sycamore Jenkins in New York, and Stephen Friedman in London, and Roberts Projects in Los Angeles, and so they've all been really supportive. So I think it's just, um, you know, you're working with the PR team, you're working with project managers, and I have always said to them, just like I've always said it throughout my career, you know... The way that we engage with Native communities is a priority, is an absolute priority. And that means that sometimes we're gonna have to work really hard on the language. This is not like another artist. It's not like working with another artist. You're, the, the, the scrutiny on us will be um, coming from both Native communities and non-Native communities. And so I think the language has to be really, really specific. So that's important to me but also the inclusion. You know, I think uh, Kathleen Ash Milby, who's one of the co-commissioners who I've known for over 20 years, when she was, uh, she was actually initially the director of the community house in New York City, and then she was the curator at National Museum of the American Indian for contemporary art. And so she came on board. Uh, I always knew I would wanna do something like this with her because she also has been engaged with, with Native communities um, and understands what she's looking at, right? So when we're talking about objects and histories, you need someone there who can say, from an academic perspective, from a historical perspective, cultural perspective, here's how we have to handle this. Like, there's a way to handle it. And then Abigail Winograd is actually who initially invited me. She's an independent curator, and we had just worked on a project together. She's an art historian and a curator, and. I need that person too, that kind of independent spirit of just like, we need to realize Jeff's vision. And and then Louis, Grouchos, and I had spoken years before about the possibility of doing Venice. And when I worked with him here at site. I love Lewis and his. I always say everybody has a superpower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lewis's superpower is he's like a social butterfly in the art world, and like he, I love seeing him like move around, and he's always like Connect the dots. connecting <laughs> with people, and you know. And so I approached him and I said, "Hey, would you consider joining our team?" And um, and that's really how the team came together, you know. And so I think I feel really confident in our team. I do, and um, the people we brought in since then they know this team knows what's important to me and so i don't have to be in every meeting and i know they're going to to speak up for me and advocate for the things they know are important to me yeah i mean i think i think we're trying to make it so that it has you know even with iaia uh, being our educational partner they're bringing their mfa students and they're going to invite their alumni so we're expecting a group of about 30 people to come to Venice for a little over a week. Amazing. And, you know, I think we we met with them the other day and we're just talking about, you know, like I said, my goal my goal for the those students is to be able to, like, look at this global snapshot of what's happening in contemporary art and how do they place themselves in it? How do we talk about, like, Indigenous weaving? How do we talk about basketry and jewelry and materials and and concept and beauty in the context of, like, global conversations around art making. And so that's my goal for them, you know, is to, to, like, because I think it's one thing to place yourself within, like, the Santa Fe conversations or even the New York City of conversations or L.A., but this is, like, a global snapshot, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of, like, and also to create another document, you know, and so we will do a publication. We'll do a website, and I think to um to make it as uh as inclusive as we can we keep talking about radical inclusivity and what that means and how do we practice it and it's also interesting when it comes to language and we're talking about translation and we're yeah. like well of course there's going to be um italian right but then i was like well if we look at the people who were thinking of having involved so with Layli, like we would need lakota we need things translated in lakota with um, some other artists, you know, we're just like, that's just our starting point. Like, look at, like, Choctaw, Cherokee, look at, we have Shoshone, Arapaho, like, we're just moving through, you know, all of this. And I think it will be, it would only make sense for an Indigenous present to join us there in some way, you know, Um, I think it will, they're tethered together, yeah. you know? So when it comes to translation, I just love talking to like a graphic designer and being like, well, we're looking at hundreds of languages. So <laughs> yeah, like, actually. <laughs> and we have to make that challenge interesting. Can we, we have, have a m- database? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, but that's
2: the thing. I, I chose to work with a graphic designer um, named Dylan Frakesa, Frakesa, I believe. But he's like up for it, you know? He, he finds those kind of challenges interesting mm-hmm. rather than saying like, well, we're going to have to choose like three or four. Like, he's already thinking, he's like, well, on the website, we can just have it an animation. You know, we can, oh, like, cool. we can go. Because it's, it's not so much that I want people to understand Lakota. I want them to understand there's hundreds of languages that they're unaware of, yeah. you know, that exist, that are being spoken and are, are exist in this world. So right. I think it's really... Um, it's a lot but it's also a lot of it's a lot of stuff some things that i don't totally enjoy but a lot of things that i'm really excited about and i have to acknowledge that i've worked really hard for this
4: yeah
0: yeah this moment has not arrived like out of nowhere i mean when when i found out through social media that you were selected it for me and my family it was like an of course moment right. you know oh it really right, right. felt like there was a moment of joy, you know, that rippled throughout all our whole community. It was like awesome. a it was like an of course moment. Right. You know, like thank you. It was a moment of gratitude and appreciation like and I think that that's something you've always brought to all of us. It's like you've always given us like like an equal measure of like care and respect and love, even when you barely know us or we're getting to know each other over the years. And it's really sweet. Yeah. And you bringing that with you to the whole world, to a global stage, like it, it is, it's, it's moving. Like I'm tearing up. I am. (laughs) God damn it.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. That's really, I mean, I think that's what the hope is. I mean, a lot of it is to like, think about, I mean, you know, to go back to music, but like all of my, like, communities of people who went to clubs and, like, that kind of acceptance and inclusion of, like, LGBTQ whole alphabet plus, like, clubs, yeah. like, <laughs> club scene. And, like, you know, this kind of celebration of people who were on the periphery of of what people were paying attention to is, like, That's sort of, that's where I believe the power is. That's what, those are the people who, I want to centralize them, you know? Yeah. And so this, this practice that we're talking about of radical inclusivity, it's like, you don't actually even have to agree with me for me to support you. And it comes from like that period of like, you know, for me, like late eighties, nineties kind of culture, not like hip hop culture, like club culture. Um, going on and then heading into like Chicago House and like dipping into gospel and like spiritual songs and and then of course like you know native traditional songs like and and growing up and seeing how and when those songs are, are used and yeah so it's like I don't know for me like I just feel like, and I tell people this too, I'm just like, look, your joy, it doesn't, I mean, I hate to say this because it sounds so kind of, I don't know, really entitled, I suppose, but I just feel like I'm like, I'm like I've am like, i got bucket loads. Like, it's bottomless. Like, I can just <laughs> keep giving. It's fine. <laughs> and it keeps me afloat, you know? Yeah. It really does. It really does keep me afloat. And I think it's, it's what's on the other side. You know, I think sometimes people meet me and they think that I d- may not understand the trauma side of things. If you met me in my teens and 20s and you knew me during that period, uh, it was tough. There were some tough moments for sure. But it started in my probably 30s where I was like... There was just some choices that I realized I could make that I was like, I want to deal with this and then I want to be able to put it down and go pursue other things and build other parts of myself. And that's a lifetime thing, you know? But I do think we have the ability to do it. And I think... I'm hoping, especially in the world we live in right now, that the, my presentation is about, uh, creating, creating a space where your fear isn't necessary, like your anxiety and your fear is not necessary, but I don't know. It's like, it's wild. I'm just thinking about some of the stuff that that we're doing and it's like,
0: Yeah, I know you're not allowed to give it away, but I'm wondering if there's any, like, like radical inclusivity as a larger theme really is telling, you know, but if there's anything else that you can, like, point towards, like, as far as, like, larger conceptual approach that might leave us with something to long for and look forward to.
2: Well, the title the title of the project is actually from Lely's poem. And so it's an excerpt and it's the space in which to place me. Mm. And, um, and I think, you know, in the way that I have used text in the past, it really is meant to sort of like for any of us who say those words, the space in which to place me means something different for you as it does for you as it does for me. Yeah. And I want I hope that that's something that's applicable to people coming from any nation, you know, who, who come there and who read this. And so that's the title of the project, and I think um, the other thing is to, you know, my narrative is very much about queer influences, like Native-Indigenous influences, and those histories, but it's meant to be more of an entry point for people to self-reflect and think about their own narratives and, like, all of those kind of intersections that bring them to where they're at, you know?
3: Mm.
2: And I think, you know, historically, the references are very much... because. It is the American Pavilion, and I'm representing the United States. And so that's a complicated relationship for a Native person. And I think a lot of this, I've had to as an artist when I really sat down and thought about what does this mean, what's important for me to show there, and it really is about that relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in a way which is, uh, you know, you want to hit the right note, you know. Yeah, I think... I'm looking at a lot of um, historical documents for language. I'm looking at a lot of founding documents for language.
3: Yeah.
2: And uh, which is also interesting because I don't necessarily know, you know, I, I know parts of American history, but to kind to of sit down and, and look at things has been really um, interesting because I do feel like when you have all the information, it's logical why we're at where we are. But there's so much information which has been shielded or not not collected stories that haven't been told, haven't been shared mm-hmm. that we're like, how did, how are we here? You know, how is this where we're at? And then when you when you really have all the information, you're like, oh my gosh, wow. Like that happened and I had no idea. And that happened and made this happen and made this happen and put that person in power and disempowered those people and that land was sold and and then you're like, that's that's how we're here.
0: Yeah. You know? And I love what you're bringing with you because there's a place for everyone and everyone's place is valid. And I think just from doing like direct action and frontline work as part of my practice over the years, like there's a time to be on a frontline and a time that you're in researching or you're doing like more quiet things or family, you know, and it feels like it's okay to like, when it calls you, like accept it and take it and do the best you can and it doesn't mean that you're always going to be that person but when you have the opportunity go (laughs) go with joy like with grace unapologetically
2: yeah and as far as the future I mean I don't really you know I think I don't know I don't really I probably felt more I, I I do talk about this kind of generational difference and I do I do think that I am of a generation for whom this is still important, like to to be an to be an artist and want to pursue Venice, mm-hmm. you know, there are younger generations who I think this will not be like the way that they envision being a successful artist, and I think that that's totally fine, you know. I think it's probably we're talking about uh, older systems of how we show value in the arts that uh, are not sustainable, you know. They may have never been really sustainable. They're very different. The histories of the Biennale, um, if you look back, it's very different than what it is now. You know, it's it's a real grand presentation mm-hmm. right now, and um, and I like that for me personally. But yeah. but I do think in the future. It's interesting to see, like, who will be chosen for the next few Biennales. And yeah. and then the market, I think, will will show a lot. I mean, I've been showing regularly since 2012. And I would say during that time, it's been difficult for people. People are like, well, who's another Native American painter working today who's, like, in Jeff's, you know, who's, who's a peer? And, um... Now that number is, like, growing and showing up, and that's really exciting.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: As I'm moving into, like, my 50s, and people are like, well, Jeff's been working for 20 years, yeah. you know? So it's like, I'm not the newbie. Like, I'm not I'm not the person who just showed up five years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean... The level of importance for like archive, like a publication or representing it, the um, Venice Biennale, like yeah. are, it is important. Like we were born before the Internet, you know, like yeah. we have yeah. a level of um, understanding of the world and our place in it and our relationship to it in a more tangible way than people who grew up thinking about the world differently, right. yeah. connected globally, like... As part of life, yeah, and so it is really interesting to think about what these next generations of native artists and artists in general are going to hold as important.
2: Yeah, I think I mean it's interesting in the book, you know, and for me it's it's funny. Like I I know you mentioned to me earlier about so I'm opening a show in New York City on September 6th, and the title of the exhibition is Ancestral Superbloom, and I love the title as well. I'm very yeah, happy with the title. Cool. But, you know, where the idea started from is, like, this question of, like, how do we signify that we're Native, or is it important? You know, like, do we have to, like, do we have to have long hair to look Native, you know? And I know lots of Native people have long hair for other reasons, but Mm -hmm. I just mean to, like, the non-Native world. It's, like, do we have to have beads on? Do we have to, like, like, do we have an accent of some kind? Like, what is it? And... I'm just interested in that line, you know, and I think future generations, I do hope that I'm able to contribute to that space where they don't have to do any of that. If it's their choice and they're doing it for their own purposes, that's great. But they shouldn't have to fulfill anyone's request in order for them to be acknowledged as an indigenous person. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with limiting what they're capable of and they have to believe that yeah. you're always going to run into people who want to like knock you down and try to convince you that you're not capable of things but it's most important for them to know like when you mentioned about like knocking on doors I was like well actually I think it's a conceptual shift where you acknowledge that door doesn't really exist
4: like, <laughs> like, never like, yeah, like, there's never been yeah, a door I love that there's never
2: a door really there we all talk about like it but,
4: metaphysical yeah. <laughs> who what yeah. door? Told you, us there like, was a door.
2: I'm like, <laughs> you just change your mind and you can walk right through that. <laughs>
0: oh, no, I like, love that. No, yeah. that's, so, that's so liberating and so powerful. And I think that that's, that's where we need to be.
2: But then you bring in, like, spiritual belief and ancestral power and requests and all this other stuff. I'm just like, door, what? Uh, I'm like, there's uh, never even a building. Like, <laughs> we're just here and I can go wherever I want to go. and. Yeah. I'm gonna float. I'm gonna float with my ancestors who are here lifting me up and
0: <sighs> I love and that's thinking it. about that's that. That's it. Yeah, and just the reminder, you know, the reminder that there is no glass ceiling or buckskin ceiling or door or no. institution no. or monolith. Like And
2: you have to you have to know that. Like <laughs> you have it's to It's like know
0: attitude. That. Like it's just such it's your attitude. Yeah. yeah. I love having my mind blown and being checked, yeah. even when I'm feeling radical being like, Oh, there's even deeper and deeper. And oh like, yeah, just yeah. going there. And yeah. I love that. So, so in order to kind of close this conversation, yeah. cause we could literally talk for three more hours, <laughs> but I know that there's a lot going on this weekend. Um, I'd love to kind of like tap, in a little bit deeper to the inspirations the toolkit the like survival mechanisms to participate like what are some ways that people can can hop on the train you know or like can be involved can like feel relevant can participate
2: yeah I mean I think that this is this might be like a really big idea so I'm going to try to say it in a way that I can even I can understand it but it took me a long time to realize that a lot of what you're saying is not intuitive a lot of what you're asking is not intuitive there are things that people learn how to do that feel uncomfortable until you learn the skill how to show up someplace how to return a phone call how to return an email how to ask for things um how to and when it feels uncomfortable, like when I was in those spaces and sweating and running for a dark corner, what was actually happening was I was growing. And it's a growing pain. And it meant that I was actually moving against something that I wanted to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. It's like it's the, the, the healing that you're feeling is so painful usually, right? You know?
2: Yeah. You you have to connect that uncomfortable feeling yeah. with it a good thing. That uncomfortable feeling is actually you growing and you kind of just get to the point where you're like if that's not happening on some level, then maybe you're not in the right place.
4: Not pushing, you
2: it's know. like if
1: you're I for my career too, it's like if if something does not feel uncomfortable, hard, terrifying, it's usually just not worth doing. I mean, there's so I love what I get to do as a curator because I am a very like I feel like I've always been good at a curator be, as a curator because I'm organized and I'm stubborn and I always want to advocate and I have an extreme sense of fairness which sometimes gets me into trouble <laughs> but that where what I make for myself is like a com, try to be composed box that I need to be in I'm able to let artists puncture it And so artists destabilize me constantly, and I love it. Because when Jeffrey, when we work together and he says, Janelle, I need you to look at this, this, and this, and I go, okay, yeah, I'm going to look at that, and this is maybe going to be super uncomfortable for me. There were times when I was working on this book that I felt incredibly destabilized to the point of, like, fear and tears. You know, like, and imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. and a lot of moments of that. But to the kids... I would echo very much from a curatorial perspective some of the things that Jeffrey is saying, because what we have seen in the years that I have been working on at Jeffrey and I are the same age is that, as you said, we are pre-internet. I did not have email in college. There was no email when I was in, or internet when I was in college. And our access points were quite limited. It was to magazines, yeah. and it was to being um, present and on the ground which meant that as an artist, you were going to have much more success in a place like New York, which was why Jeffrey would have moved there. Mm -hmm. And then if you're working in a hinterland, what we would call a hinterland, like, you know, it's going to be harder, not impossible, but harder for your work to be seen by the people who are going to propel it forward. Yeah. Now we have social media, which is a necessary evil I think at times but opens up a lot of access to a lot of communities that did not have it before
4: mm-hmm. but
1: as a, uh, when I have been working with artists when I do work with artists I remind people a lot or coach or push it's like what you said you do for Living Ginger it's like okay I know how to do these things and I'm going to tell you this there is no gallery without art there is no museum without art and an artist and I love to tell artists like, ask for what you want. Don't feel like an art that someone's going to say no and you're never going to get another chance. Like really, really push if you can, and ask for the things mm-hmm. um, that the kids like. How do you become an artist? How can you get this access? You need to work your ass off. Yeah. <laughs> you need to work your ass That's off. A lot of work. You need to make. You need to work as hard as you can. You need to put the hours into your work. You need to ask people to come over and look at it. You need to um, get it out there however you're comfortable getting it out there into whatever world you want it to be in. The artists included in Indigenous Present are involved in a lot of different art worlds. They live in a lot of different parts of... The countries of the U.S. and Canada, they're involved in all different levels. Um, There are artists in this book who are 27. There are artists who are in their 80s. And, like, yeah, that's what I'm constantly telling artists of all ages, when their galleries are abusing them, when the galleries are not paying their artists, when they're demanding things for art fairs, Mm -hmm. when they're putting them in positions of being merely producers of product. And... I just want to tell artists, like, if you are uncomfortable with this, please, please, please push back. Find the people you trust and start trusting them and, and asking them for help. If you're working with a curator who's not really coming to you, call another curator that you do trust and be like, what do I do? How can I talk about this or whatever? And so it is, it's hard to find all those people.
0: It doesn't happen for everybody. And I'm giving like best case scenario. Yeah. And it sounds like it takes time, like 20 years to build a support I I mean,
2: I think, I think, yeah, it does take time for me, but not for everybody. Some people come right out and I think that's sort of been what I hope, you know, some of what I've been doing and other artists have been doing is that, the window is shorter, you know, of yeah. time that it takes for things to happen. So this, like, speed of how quickly things are happening now, it quickly shifts the conversation to, like, well, how do you navigate all this potential opportunity and choice and things like that? I mean, I do think one thing is that you have to put yourself in a place where people can see you. Mm-hmm. And I think online social media and things like that helps tremendously. There's also so many more contemporary art centers throughout the country than there ever has been, you yeah. know, and I think, um,
1: and they all matter equally. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is like making work for the market generally, in my experience, what I've seen does not work. Does you mean not catering work. towards yeah. the
0: market? Yeah. Yeah. You have to remain authentic. Yeah.
2: You have, it's, it's like, and this, I said this to someone the other day, but I feel like the more you lean in to specifically who you are and what you do and what you can bring to the table, the more exciting it is for someone else to support it because mm. they've never seen it before. So they're just like, "What is this?" You know. And then it's more sort of like, like when I start, well, I do collect art, and I've collected a lot of native artists. And when I'm watching somebody, that's the other thing. When I first started like getting attention, people were coming to me and saying, "Like, I've been watching your work for like." two or three years at this point, you know? So they had, like, questions, like, real questions to answer to ask me. And I do the same thing now. I'll see an artist and I'll get super excited and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, I should get that. I should get that. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, but who knows what they're going to do next. Like, maybe if I have one shot of getting one thing, is this the time? And I'm like, I'm going to watch them. I'm going to watch yeah, them. Yeah. And I watch and I watch. And if it doesn't move on, sometimes I'm kind of like, hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I wonder what that means and sometimes if it suddenly takes a huge leap i'm like i wonder what that means you know and then so i would say more people could be watching you than you're even aware of and even going to venice right which is a big deal mm-hmm. um there are people at different levels within the art market who have never heard of jeffrey gibson this is the first time they're hearing of jeffrey Gibson. And they're like, How have I never seen this? Like, and they're like, I would like to get a Jeffrey Gibson. And then they're like, Well, there are none available, you know, and and so it's sort of like those people who are like listening and watching and paying attention, those are the good people
3: mm-hmm.
2: in the art market. And mm. the art market to me is it's a mechanism. You know, it was sort of how if we didn't get funding from Mellon, I was just like, I will figure it out. Yes, like, yeah. I will figure it we out. You
1: knew who to call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: and so, but but I'm really thrilled that Melon came in, and I didn't have to do that because it was really, yeah, it, was, it would have added another level of work, which mm-hmm. is another thing. But I think to a young person, it's like you know, another thing I always tell them: it's like, like your studio, you know, is is a sacred space. Mm-hmm. It's not for anyone else. It's your, your space. You command what happens in there. And you have to drop all of your pretenses. You have to let yourself be as vulnerable as you can possibly be in that space. Because you have to know yourself. Like, yeah. 100, 150%, you have to know yourself. Then you get to pick and choose what you decide to share. Just because you acknowledge it in your space does not mean that's what you have to share to the public. Yes, This is just your, like, full-spectrum self for you to understand yourself. And then you pick and choose what's important for you to share.
0: Mm, That's such great insight, you know, because I think a lot of times there is a pressure, especially for people who come from culture to like... Um, oh, put yeah. that at the forefront of their practice. and yeah. it can you can be an artist who happens to be indigenous. Like Chinuba and I talk about that all the time. Yeah. It's like like yeah. playing between the worlds and like, what do you want to share and um, what is sacred? you know? Yeah. and like sometimes you feel more bold to yeah. like share deeper parts of your culture. Right. and sometimes it's like no matter how bad they want it, you it's not theirs, you yeah. know. And so yeah. I, I see you dancing dancing between that and many artists, like in this book who are our yeah. friends. And um, so that's just great insight to yeah. like n- remember that you're in control. You know,
2: you are. You're. I mean, there's there's parts that you can craft, and your studio is one of those spaces mm-hmm. for sure. And who you invite, I people loved love it when I tell them there's been three times I've asked people to leave my studio (laughs) and I will not name
4: names,
2: (laughs) but you know, you're in a conversation. It just starts feeling icky. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to stop this conversation and I'm going to politely ask you to leave my space and shock, you know, just like, what could I have possibly done? And they want, then they want me to educate and explain like exactly why, what happened? Did did I say something? I'm like, yeah, you did, but I'm just going to ask you to leave. I'm going to end this. I'm, I don't want you in my space any longer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Those some of the most empowering things I've ever done because mm-hmm. you feel like you're supposed to let this person be here to give you opportunity. And I just, you know, there's been, that like I said, about three times when it just felt like the very right thing. And I could feel my blood pressure going up. You could feel, like, your body temperature changing, and you're just like, nope.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, the adrenaline's rushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, Jeff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, too, like, I mean, a whole other... I know we're so over time, Ginger. Can we add like a whole other podcast with you
4: at some point? Because
1: one's about the market, mm-hmm. about where this work is going, mm-hmm. that is being collected mm-hmm. so much more now. And one um, specifically among the 60 fascinating conversations that we got to have that these artists let us have with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a conversation with Melissa Cody, who's a fifth-generation Navajo weaver, and I went to her studio because she lives near me in Los Angeles. And so, you know, I called and said, can I please come over, which is, um, she let me, and we talked about her weaving. And one thing that I think that museums who are starting to collect this work, finally, are need to start to get much, much better at, and this is something that um, I started writing about when we were working on this project together, is What happens when a museum purchases, contemporary museum, purchases a work by Jeffrey, by Melissa Cody, by artists whose work needs more than a storehouse or a wall? When it is really important that a weaving receives regular air, singing, and care, like Melissa's work does, what happens when let's just say someplace like um, the Whitney Museum buys that, what is that museum going to do to um, follow the care instructions that matter to that artist? And how much museums are going to be challenged by the fact that this is an absolutely new paradigm? A weaving, according to a conservator, needs to be kept in the dark and cannot be shown a lot. Now, we, of course, can follow all the histories of the Huge and monumental and historical problems of Native American indigenous artifacts and museums that are not being honored and sung to and blessed and talked to, et cetera, right? Okay, so how do we shift the conversation around contemporary art and what it might need, artist to artist, but how that can go out? And I think that that is like an incredibly important topic as this market changes, as artists are starting to be. And I'm just like... I'm thinking about it and coming to it from my perspective as a museum curator for 20 years and wh- how collections are handled mm-hmm. and how work is seen. But like, how do we start to change that among all artists um, who are working mm. and how stuff is being brought in and how can museums start to say, okay, you know what? We actually are not going to store that piece in a dark room where it is never seen and has rules because of fading, but actually it's going to hang when it's not on view in someone's office. And it will receive whatever care the artist asks us to do. And I just think, like, to me, that's, like, a, a pretty mind-blowing for, from an institutional perspective only, not for, like, a regular everyday perspective of an artist working in their studio. Like, what can curators and museums and conservators and everybody do to, like, when you say, you know, this is what needs to happen with my work over the years while you're caring for it. Well, and not, like, and let's just say also, like, the museum doesn't own it, that they're holding it. Or that a collector is holding it and caring for it. And let's work on getting better paperwork and agreements around, like, what happens when that work goes to auction and that person is just trying to capitalize on Jeffrey's mm. fame or something. Like, mm-hmm. how can we work? Look, like, I mean, we everybody's been trying to do this for other, But the, the inequitability in the market, the art market, is atrocious. And we have got to make it better. And when I say we, it's like, all of us peons on the ground who actually have relatively little control, but that you know the the money involved, the the absolutely unregulated like enormity of the art market of the contemporary mainstream art market is like it, there's got to be shifts, and this is something that working on this project really brought more to the fore
4: mm-hmm. for
1: me as a person an in institutional mm. setting. Wow. Wow. So, yeah.
2: A couple of exhibitions I've done recently, in particular with ICA in San Francisco. Yeah. um, I, um, you know, we focused on the Bates, which is the Bay Area, Indian... I don't know, forget it, the, how it all stands for now, I apologize <laughs> for that. But they've been hosting, like, the first recognized, like, Two-Spirit Pow Wow for, I believe they're in your, I don't even know when, it's been a while. Yeah. And I was so excited to go, but we we offered to, like, partner with them, and at, that's the community, one of the communities we decided to work with. But, you know, what I said to ICA early on was I said, uh, programming will not always be public Sometimes programming, you're going to hand this over to the Native communities here in the Bay Area. It's not to be photographed. It's not to be written about. It's not to be distributed publicly. It is about those communities being able to occupy the space in the way that they want to. Mm. And and the museum agreed. That was never a problem for them. And I think, you know, there were other things, like we brought a tree in, like <laughs> the kind of singing, the ceremony that we had to return it, the person who had to do it. Um, where the tree came from like you couldn't just go pluck a tree like and and they had to save all of the things that fell off of the tree and we had to write it we had to write it down you know Mm -hmm. for people to like remember because it that accountability is not a habit right now you know they don't people don't look at a tree and think oh, she's dying in front of us. Like, we need to pay respect to her as she's dying. We need to return her so she can feed the future generations. She needs to go someplace where she's not going to, you know, uh, you know, she has to work with the environment that we're going to place her in. And she needs to be sung to, and she needs to be prayed over, and mm-hmm. she needs to be thanked. And so all of that was kind of kind of amazing. And I know we rewrote contracts as to what it meant to have that Joan has a very specific way of working, and we really had to, like, make sure that they honored that. Mm. And um, so I think I feel I feel like with me, maybe the way that I present it sometimes that is most something comprehensible for institutions mm-hmm. is concept. You know, it's like you don't necessarily have to practice this, but you have to honor it as a concept of the project and of the work.
0: Yeah. And I think that right now we're in this, the eye of the hurricane, you know, it's hard to see what the ripple effects will be of an indigenous present. It's beautiful because we won't know these ripple effects because protocols are shifting in museums. I've noticed where as they're designing new museums, they're making certain areas that are able to have smoke
4: yeah so that yeah. people
0: can smudge and these yeah. are just things that are being put into like architectural development in the next five or so years that weren't even thought about before indigenous no. presence was there i know?
2: was an advisor for a building at jacobs pillow um and that building will open in a couple of years in um massachusetts and so this new theater there was a theater there that died that burned down and then so they were rebuilding it and yeah, just talking to them about, like, the directions, being able to acknowledge, like, the water under the ground, like, being able to acknowledge the sky, mm-hmm. that dancers might want to dance in a circle. They don't necessarily want to dance on a stage with, like, a frontal and audience. And I have to say, they they were designing this building, and I hope they don't mind me sharing this, but they showed, they showed the designs, and I was like, it's a perfectly fine building. This is nothing that we discussed. Oh. <laughs> And slowly everybody agreed. Everybody was like, you're right. I thought it too. And total pivot after months of designing and where they've landed, I have to say, is a building that does acknowledge everything we spoke about.
0: That's a good metaphor for just how long it takes to get, like, a point across of, like, how to do things different and, like, unlearn old, like, really colonial ways. Yeah. Well, I feel like I have to go because I have to go get my kids.
1: <laughs> I don't want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you did. You, you can't do. have to yeah, you awesome. yeah. Like our mom forgot us. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well,
0: Chiduba has to come back, yeah. so I, we have to like high yeah, five and tell. No, this is Scott. It's like there is so much to talk about. I love it though. Um, this is this is why this podcast is yeah. so special because yeah. it's like they're just needs to be space for these kind of conversations. And sometimes they need to last five hours or three hours or two hours. And um, I think because we're oversaturated with like 15 second clips of things and just like the distilled version of things, having long formats, having big books and like beautiful podcasts to listen to is so important right now. It, it builds, it, it builds gender. our community. Like, I
1: listen to, I mean, I learned so much from your podcast over the last two years. Every time we would get ready to talk to somebody, I would be like, did Jitter interview them? Aww. I would listen to it. So I feel like extraordinarily honored to, to be, on. Yeah. I feel like I'm with a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. And that, um, that like there's, and the unlearning learning you said, it's just, I just love what you do. And that, um. What you've done is so extraordinary, and it's yeah. like it's fed you, into this. I just want you yeah. to know, like your presence is here, yeah. and we wanted sure. you to be part of the launch tomorrow because yeah. of the what we've experienced through your work and the the last year when we were here for um, the weekend, a swaya weekend, and so it's like, yeah. yeah, you're just doing so much for all kinds of communities everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I
0: I really feel lucky to be able to um be in community yeah. and like to be to be like kind of a secret weapon for so yeah. many communities that I love and care about because I have a lot of that anxiety that you talk about, right. about like having to dip out and like yeah. hide that like, that's why I DJ. Cause I can hide yeah. behind turntables, you <laughs> yeah, know? I know, I know,
2: <laughs> Lights down. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I'm yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But so yeah, to be able to be a, a contributor to like helping to amplify yeah. people I love and care about is really important to me. So yeah. I'm. It it's shares. my pleasure. Oh,
3: thank it you. Shares. Yeah. It's yeah. An amazing
0: job. Yeah. Well, we look forward to all right. seeing what you do in Venice yeah. and um, just the rest of all of the exciting projects. Yeah. And thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you.
2: Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you, Jino Thank you, Ginger. All right. Cut.
2: <laughs> Cut.
4: Smoke <laughs> green shimmers and. Blue. Blue. Pass it through the seasons Blue. Sleep So deep We keep for you Raise those eyes, make luscious you Dance the way we always do